The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Iron List. Oh, I'm sorry. Hang on. The Iron List. Uh, I think I like the first one better. Eh, maybe I'll change it next time. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, this is the long episode. Oh, boy. Uh, and this it just it's going to feel extra long for us because uh, here's what happened. Uh, the Iron List is a monthly show uh, where our patrons get to decide one big top ten list that Whitney and I both do. He comes up with the top ten mm-hmm. list. I come up with the top ten list. We don't talk about it beforehand. It's a big list of recommendations, movies we care about and love. Uh, and we do them every month. And they usually run at least two hours. Um, we recorded one. And, uh, mo- mo- and we got most of, we, of the way through. Most of the way through it. And then my laptop basically exploded. In, uh, in the middle of recording. And uh, I lost a lot of data, uh, including a lot of podcast episodes that we had had in the can, uh, including the episode we were recording, which is most of the Iron List. So we recorded this episode like two weeks ago, and then it took a while to get the computer fixed, and we were working with Whitney's machine, and that's why some of our episodes sounded a little different for a little while. And uh, we're back up and running, and we just haven't had the time to sit down and do the whole Iron List until <laughs> now. So we're going to do the whole damn Iron List. And this month, the option uh, that our patrons went for was movies based on TV shows. Now, this could mean a couple of things. It could be a continuation of a television series, mm-hmm. where the movie that came out is takes place before, during, or after the TV series that everyone already knew. It could also be uh, an update of the series of some kind, where uh, you know the series existed in its own universe, and now the movie is a remake or reboot thereof. A um, lot of wiggle room mm-hmm. with this, and, uh, and again, Whitney and I don't talk about our lists in advance. This time, I know some of the stuff uh, is on his, but because um, we already recorded it, but. Uh, yeah, we, we don't talk about this ahead of time, and our criteria isn't necessarily the same. Yeah, um, we, we get to invent our own criteria as individuals. Yeah. Uh, as such, we have things that we might take exception to mm-hmm. a little bit, uh, or we understand are bending kinds of our, our own kinds of rules. Uh, right. The, the criteria are very broad, is the point, and uh, we can come up with the rules as we go. Um, I have a few on my list that one might uh, take exception to mm-hmm. in that they may- don't quite maybe it qualifies yeah, maybe, it maybe it qualifies as being uh, based on a TV show maybe not mm-hmm. um, and why don't we just start there may I um, yeah I don't or, think we have any yeah, other there's, there's uh, no any other, other thing we other, need to set other up word here. of introduction yeah, we can um, just jump right in just again so enjoy oh oh and if you're new we do our top 10 list a little differently Uh, we don't count down like oh our number nine is better than our number 10 and our number eight is better than our number nine we recommend all of these movies more or less equally. The only difference is Whitney and I are each responsible for picking one. Like our number one is if we had to pick the best one of these yeah. ever. It's obviously so a lot then, of personal preference and taste in there, but our number one is our number one. 
everything else, it's a tie for number two. <laughs> yeah. Ten through two, tie for number two. Don't get hung up on the order. We recommend all these movies. Yeah. So, uh, what's the first so one I want to talk about? The first one I want to talk about is a film that does come after a popular television adaptation, but it could also be seen as sort of a, a new adaptation of the original source material. Okay. Because they're both both based off of the comic strips of Charles Adams. Ah. Uh, and his family therein, uh, henceforth known as the Adams Family. Uh, the film that Barry Sonnenfeld directed uh, is pretty sublime. I like Barry Sonnenfeld's The Adams Family a lot. Uh, whether or not it's based directly on the TV show is up for some debate. I'm going to include it here mm-hmm. uh, because I like the sitcom as well. The uh, sitcom from the 1960s with uh, Carolyn Jones and John Aston uh, and um, uh, Ted Cassidy. Mm. Wonderfully silly. And yep. what I like about the Adams family uh, is exemplified in Barry Sonnenfeld's movie in that they are they are monsters. The quote from yeah. Rob Zombie is that the monsters, the other sort of rival monster sitcom from the 1960s, was about ordinary people who just happen to look like monsters. Yeah, the idea is that the people who look next, who live next door to you, might look weird, but they're just like you they're and ju- me. Yeah. And, and by just like you and me, we mean very white. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just sort of white, bland suburban family. Yeah, they just happen to look like Frankenstein's monster and vampires and stuff. And that's the whole joke of the monsters yeah. is how normal they are. Uh, the Adams family look like ordinary people, but they are monsters on the inside. They are kind they're, of they're really vile, they're, they're, violent people. They're vile murderers. Uh, <laughs> the opening scene of the, of the Adams Family movie is, uh, and it's based on a Charles Adams strip, is uh, it shows Christmas carols at, at the door of the Adams Family house, mm-hmm. which is a, a haunted mansion, essentially. Yeah, it looks like Bates Motel house. And, yeah. and we pan up, uh, the camera pans up, up the sort of spire of the Adams Family house while the carolers are caroling below, and we see the Adams Family pouring hot lead on them, their heads. All they're of them are going people. to die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're murdering these people that came to their house, and yeah. they're smiling and laughing while they do it. Because they... Mm-hmm. To them, that's a good family. That's a good Christmas. It's a, a fun. Uh, Morticia Adams cuts the heads off of roses and keeps the thorns. Yeah. The, uh, uh, Wednesday a, and Pugsley play games called "Is There a God?" And they which involves putting other. Pugsley in an electric chair and throwing the switch, mm. and that's fine. And that's fine. In fact, uh, oh, we were just playing in our room. Like yeah. they, the parents see that Pugsley's strapped into an electric chair. Well, hurry up and come downstairs, and they electrocute yeah. Pugsley, and he's dead, well, as far as we know, and that somehow well, they, he's immortal. They never really explain, like, how reality works in the Addams Family, mm. because the implication is that all of this stuff is horrifying, but also the implication is these characters are basically Looney Tunes, and they can take any punishment <laughs> you can dish out they're in kind, the end. They're kind I don't, of supernatural. But I don't know, but here's the thing I never understand is, is every character like that, or is it only the Addams Family? Like they, if, when they, like... In the Adams Family Values, which which is my number ten, okay. So we'll just, we'll just you pick the first right. one. I pick the second one. Well, they're both I, brilliant. I, I think they're both great. They're both um, brilliant. They're, I, they're a tie, basically. I do love yeah. the end of Adams Family Values yeah. because it does end where uh, Wednesday, teenage uh, girl, yeah. manages to whip a whole summer camp into a frenzy to the point where they just murder all the adults. They're murdering all the adults. At the end of it, the ultra conservative uh, and extremely. Uh, racist and sexist camp counselors played by Peter McNichol and Christine Baranski. Brilliant. Uh, they're spit roasted. <laughs> like we don't see them die, but they're tied the, to a pole. They're, they're tied being, to a pole. Yeah. And the implication is not only are they going to be killed slowly by having their guts cooked, mm. 
Mm-hmm. They're also going to be eaten. <laughs> we never see that happen, but we also never see those characters again. Mm-hmm. Whereas when that happens to a member of the Adams family, we see them again. So I don't know if that's just the rule of the universe that everyone can take this kind of punishment. No, no, no. My, because, my or if it's is, just the Adams family. And the Adams family is just this weird, you know, weird family line where my, you can yeah. drop an anvil on them and they're okay. My takeaway is that, yeah, there's something bizarre about the Adams family. Yeah. Like the, the actual Adams. Yeah, um, in, the, in the DNA. Yeah, that yeah. they have that sort of like Jason restorative gene where you can yeah. kill them and they just sort of come back. Yeah. And they find that to be incredibly amusing. Well, and I imagine you would. And they, it would change your whole perspective on they, things, wouldn't it? These are, uh, and what I appreciate about the Adams family and especially about this movie is it yeah. captures something very important about the Adams family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's that they are outsiders who love sex and death. Yeah. And who well, stand in direct contrast and whose very existence is a, a clawed middle finger to the status quo. Well, you said that they love sex and death, and they do love sex, by the mm-hmm. way. And boy, are Gomez and Morticia, in particular, this version played by Raul Julia and Angelica Houston. The, Gomez and Morticia in the show, mm. they were totally into each other, and they were really, T- really great. Dish, that's French. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Raul Julia and Angelica Houston, they fuck. Oh, yeah. And they're fucking constantly. And... Even as a kid, when I was like, eh, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, even as a kid, I was like, that's probably what people in love should be like. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that's not judgmental. I know there's a lot of people who are uh, asexual or have mm-hmm. other uh, uh, ways they prefer the romantic relationships to be, and that's totally fine. But the point is that you should be really into your partner. You should just be really happy with them. Yeah. And they are. And that's something that I think the Adams family captures. You said they're into sex and death. They're also into life. They're living their lives mm. more fully than anyone else <laughs> in, in these movies. Everyone else in these movies is not, stymied by some bullshit. Mm. And they're but just not in doing an aspirational they, sort of way. I feel like in their, they are in their a little own, bit. In their own sort of way. They're aspirational if you uh, longed to flee. If you wanted to be on the outside, well, uh, yeah. they, they stand as counterculture icons. And, and uh, a lot of people yeah. have really found a home in counterculture. Yeah, exactly. That, which that's is why where, they're great. That's, that's, that's why I, I appreciate what uh, Barry Sonnenfeld's film did. Yeah. Um, you look at the Adams Family and you'd be shocked to learn it's not a Tim Burton movie. It, took it a really lot does of, feel like A it, lot yeah. of his visual cues and a lot of the storytelling yeah. and even that outsider quality from Tim Burton. And Barry Sonnenfeld, uh, this was his directorial debut. He, he had was previously, a photographer before. Like, he was a cinematographer. He had worked a lot with the Coen brothers and uh, some of their more dynamic early yeah, films. He, he shot big. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's done a lot of like done a lot of big yeah. hit films. One of, one of uh, and, and he, it turns out he had a wonderful sense of humor. Mm. And a lot of his best films have been comedies. But in this one, it was a really good marriage of his stylistic impulses. It's a very visually exaggerated film. And he found just the right material to do that. And the, that really uh, supports it. The special effects on Thing are they hold up. exemplary. Well, look good. That's a real disembodied hand. You you couldn't tell me that that was a, that that was a person and they CG'd them out. Mm. That was a real hand. It was a real hand in every yeah. scene. Uh, I, I fully believe that. There, there are some scenes where, like, clearly, like he's just sticking his hand through a hole in the table. Well, yeah, but, but uh, like, that's just from the show. But yeah. Uh, well, the, the thing in the show was a severed human hand that lived in a box, and they'd yeah. open a box, and the hand would reach out and help them, and they just yeah. called it Thing. Yeah. Uh, in in this movie, they decided to have Thing be 
a severed hand that just walks living around. That yeah. Way, yeah, walks around on its fingertips, and oh, it's so great. It's really cool looking. It's so fun, and, and they a got fun a, they, and they got a, like a hand model, like a hand yeah. actor who was known for doing that sort of thing. And they dressed him like the green body stocking, and they yeah. just edited him out. It's so great. There's a scene where a thing is running down a street, mm-hmm. and they just had him like hanging off a car running down the street. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's so cool. There's, a, there's one where thing has to get a job, and he becomes a mail delivery guy in an office. Yes, and he has to like <laughs> deliver packages, and he's really good at it. And like they like hook up his wrist to like a wheelbarrow mm. like wheelbarrow a uh, what do you call it a uh, uh what do you call it, little carts it's just a wagon just a wagon like yeah. a kid's wagon yeah oh, it's so fucking funny um i love the but, original um, i think the sequel is as good if not better and not mm. not the least of which because a that whole sequence at a summer camp where you take the atoms out of their environment and put them in an environment that a lot of people would consider wholesome, but the to the atoms is it's, it's like hell. For it's them. hell. It's like legitimately hell, and you see it from their perspective, and it is. Yeah. And and then in the morning, all their old noses had grown back. <laughs> ah! um, the and what I appreciate is that we take the atoms out of their element, and the atoms have no interest. No. In fact, in order to understand them, they essentially have to be brainwashed, and they have yeah. this like happiness shack they have to yeah. lock her in. It's like the hot box, or you know, like yeah. a, a solitary confinement. It's the clickwork orange. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and and so they try to brainwash uh, Wednesday Adams, and she isn't. She breaks free. Yeah. And brings her darkness to the world, and not the She's other way too around. Powerful. That's that's the issue I have with the new animated film. Yeah, is that it's about this sort of like exchange of ideas, and the, the they're Adams more like being, the monsters. Yeah, but they're more being like, they're good more like neighbors. Harmless, yeah. Like, no, they're not good neighbors. They're terrible. They're the worst kill you. neighbors. Um, but the other thing I really like about the sequel is that. Um, the plot of the first movie is kind of a bad sitcom plot about how it's Fester like, went missing and though there's an imposter Fester, but he's actually the real Fester. Mm-hmm. And it's all fine because it gives the Adams family plenty of stuff to do, but it's not a great plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plot of the second one where Joan Cusack plays the Adams uh, new nanny mm-hmm. uh, and Fester falls in love with her and she marries him and she like ends up like taking all the family money and, She's gonna kill Fester, but she can't kill Fester because he's unkillable. Um, <laughs> that bit's rather genius, and Joan Cusack is perfect. Joan Cusack is one of the funniest actors we've ever had, and she's like right up there with Madeline Kahn. Like, just seriously, one of the most just, brilliant comedic actors we've ever and, had. Uh, and her character is just as twisted as the Adams family, yeah, but just in a different way. But yeah, she she's motivated by hate and not by glee. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, the only difference. And, right? and it and it works. Mm. Um, the the original is good. The sequel is just as good, if not better. Um, and yeah, those. That's, I, I think uh, I prefer the original just because I like the little bit more of the. If you but they're the, both fine. If you, you flip know, the not, coin and put either one on a TV, we would be exceptionally happy right yeah, now. I, I, yeah, I, I don't dislike the sequel. There I was just a, think I like the original. There was a live better. action uh, made for TV movie called mm-hmm. Adam's Family Reunion that is technically a sequel to this. The only person New in the cast, cast who returned yeah. was Ted Ca- was Ted Cassidy, I think. It was. Uh, uh, Oh wait, the grandmother returned too, didn't they? Uh, well, it wasn't. Ted Cassidy was in the sitcom. Uh, oh, you're right. My bad. It was Carol Stroykin. Yeah, Carol Stroykin. Carol Stroykin returned, and I think the woman played the granny. One of them returned, mm-hmm. but um, it had uh, Tim Curry and Daryl Hannah. Tim Curry is really doing the John Aston version, not nearly the Lothario, but more like the kooky weirdo. 
Daryl Hannah is a very respectable Morticia. Okay. Yeah, so I that, haven't seen that one. It's, so, it's, yeah. it's fine. It's not, if that was the only one that they made, it would be really, it would be as forgotten now as like the Little Rascals movie, but <sighs> it's a perfectly charming little movie. And if you've never seen it, it might be worth tracking down if you like the Addams Family. Yeah. But yeah, these two are just these rare, beautiful diamonds. Um, all right. Well, that's my number 10 and your number 10. What's your next one you want to talk uh, about? Let's see here. Um, what do I want to talk about next? Do I, I think I might have. Uh, you know, th- this is another one that. And by the is, way, this is totally acceptable as, as a TV thing because they're basing it off of the show more than the comic. Uh, I think a little of both. I think yeah. they're. It, you, it could be debated. Is my yeah, point. yeah. Um, let's see. Um, here's another one that might be a little bit of an exception because yeah. the TV show was such a strange entity that when it came time for them to make a movie, they kind of created this brand new entity. Uh-huh. But it's uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's also on my list. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of the funniest comedies of all time. Well, it's hard to, for me, for me, it's actually weird because it's not necessarily my favorite Monty Python movie. Mm. Uh, Monty Python uh, made several films. uh, The first of which, Monty Python, if, if, in case anyone doesn't know, Monty Python is a British sketch comedy troupe with the likes of John Cleese, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, Terry Gilliam, Mm. uh, Eric Idle. uh, Terry Jones, Graham Chapman. Terry Jones, Graham Chapman. Um, It's brilliant bizarre Dadaist sketch comedy humor was highly influential uh, and it was so popular that they ended up making some movies. The first movie that they made was called And Now for Something Completely Different and it was basically them... It was a way to import their sketches into theaters. They took sketches that they'd already done on television and they restaged them with more money, you know, Mm. a bit more more believable sets, that kind of thing. It's fine. If you've never seen the show, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Every version is the inferior version. That's true. <laughs> the but TV it's still show funny. is always better. It's still funny, yeah. and if you've never seen it, it's worth a watch. Um, and then they did three other movies that were proper movies. They did one like one like live show movie, but uh, they did Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is about King Arthur in search of the Holy Grail. Uh, the Life of Brian, which was their version of someone whose life ran parallel to Jesus's. Hmm. That movie is in many respects very offensive, but also there's some really brilliant bits in it. Um, <laughs> G- gloriously and pointedly offensive. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're, there's they're, they're, yeah for them they, they try, get away try, with almost all of it. Tr- but like, trying, yeah. trying to be pretty blasphemous. Yeah, it's 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 really quite amazing when that movie works. There's nothing funnier. Uh, yeah, and then there's a, the meaning of, of life, mine, which uh, is a mess, but has some great bits. Uh, the the every sperm is sacred song like the song and dance all the from, songs yeah. in money meaning of life meaning of life are great uh, but, Christmas uh, in heaven is wonderful mm, uh, the galaxy song the galaxy is wonderful. song is really really wonderful yeah, um, yeah. Uh, some a lot of weird special effects uh, when when death visits <laughs> how could we have all have died the salmon moose um, <laughs> some funny bits it's um, funny bits it's just some more hit and miss also some very unfunny bits. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the energy and the absurdism is just sort of out the window in the third movie. Yeah. But uh, Holy Grail, they decided to have like a little bit more of a, a cohesive story. They yeah. couldn't just have wild sketches as yeah. a feature. Like, they could have, but right. they didn't. And, so they decided to wrap it around the story yeah. of King Arthur, which makes a lot of sense because the story of King Arthur, A, has gone through a lot of revisions throughout mm-hmm. history, so there's no like one pure version. So you, they you, don't have to, you don't have to set anything up. You know King no. Arthur. Also, really episodic. Yeah, the actual yeah, history yeah. of King Arthur, yeah. like the, the actual story of Arthur is kind of linear, but there's a lot of segues and it gives you an opportunity to tell the story of all the individual knights, most of whom had stories of their own anyway. Yeah. So you've got a wonderful opportunity to tell a story that has a framework, but it's really loosey goosey about it. And you get to tell a story about British history mm. 
and really stick it to the man like a lot of times and <laughs> like, like just really yeah. just take take a good solid sock in the jaw yeah, it's, to, it's, to just England as a concept it, it's it it's one of those screenplays that you know you watch it and of course you want to repeat it uh, you know, that, that quality people's called uh, quotable and it's the, incredibly quotable yeah, like, from the, the first the, uh, scene from the credits yeah the, the reality falls apart. Reality is something to riff upon rather yeah. than, than respect or admire. And, uh, yeah, right when, when they get started, they just sort of make fun of the very notion of subtitles yeah. and they call attention to the actual production. Yeah. The subtitles for the credits, uh, start to go off on this weird tangent about mooses, about mooses and how a moose once bit the subtitle writer's sister. Yeah. And then they stop the credits and they put a caption up on the screen saying, we saw that the subtitles were getting a little silly. We'll get better. We, we, we've, we've fired we the fired, subtitlers. We fired the yeah. subtitlers. And then yeah. they start up again, and the immediate subtitle is another joke about a moose. And they have to stop them again immediately <laughs> and say, the people who are responsible for firing the people who are responsible for firing the people who have also been fired. And they start again, and then they, uh, they, the, the it, moose it, jokes it, continue apace, and they say, look... <laughs> We can't deal with this anymore. So at the last minute, we just redid uh, all of the subtitles with great expense, uh-huh. and they fire up again, uh-huh. and it's like now it's all lava. It's jokes. mariachi. Jo- it's mariachi uh, music, and a lot of flashing lights, and all of the jokes are about llamas. Right from the bat, you either yeah. know you love this movie or you don't. Yeah. If if that sounds tiresome to you, you're in the then, wrong then, theater. Yeah. Then you probably won't like uh, is, the film going forward. That's, that is a that is a litmus this, test. Uh, it, it really just uh, is a wonderful skewering of what the show did, which is uh, kind of a skewering of British good manners. Yeah. And how a lot of uh, social uh, British devotion and this I'm, I'm quoting the, the Pythons in like interviews mm-hmm. that there was this sort of uh, in England, this devotion to um, good manners to the point of being incredibly dull. Uh, being yeah. dull was an aspirational thing to a lot of British people and they wanted to kind of send that up that even when some presented with something completely weird and extraordinary, there's still going to be this, uh, devotion to this dullness. And, uh, King Arthur is not only a great place to go because a, you know, the history, a, they can make fun of British history, mm. but you also have a straight man built in. Yeah. King, King Arthur, Arthur is himself the man. is yeah. like, he says funny things mm-hmm. and he does a few goofy things, but, but he's reacting to everyone else being weird around him. Yeah. He's the only one who really gets to do that. And you could even say that about most of the knights, like even Lancelot's yeah. like, no, I need to kill people. I'm actually knight errant, but of course he gets a little, a little too violent with a little that. too kill happy. Yeah. yeah. Like right for my idiom. <laughs> I need to do this in my own proper, um, oh. idiom, sir. Idiom. <laughs> Yeah, when, um, when so uh, somebody tries to break into song and they turn to the camera, there's all this you know fourth wall breaking. Tons and, of it, and, yeah. and the if you haven't seen the movie, the ending is one of the boldest masterstrokes in all of film comedy. And it was entirely dictated by budget. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. basically we ran out of money. How do we end this movie? They came up with a brilliant way to end that movie. It is perfect. Uh, it is just one of the funniest movies ever. It holds up really great. It's actually quite salient. I remember. Uh, this uh, we, I took a class in Arthurian literature in college, mm-hmm. and we really poured over this because, in addition to it's not just the satire, they know Arthurian lit, they know the history mm. of England, and in fact, ironically, in their 
need to work on a low budget. Many of the things in this movie are more historically accurate than a lot of the glossier high production value things. Mm. The fight between the Black Knight and the Green Knight before the Black Knight like throws a broadsword 20 feet in the air and stabs him <laughs> in the eye. Up until that point, that's one of the most realistic sword fights we've ever seen of like yeah, people in plate mail in a movie. It's, it's because hard that's to just, move, those swords yeah, are heavy. Because yeah. that's just what, it, it doesn't look fun. It doesn't look mm. fancy. It doesn't look cool. It's just people duking it mm. out in really incredibly uncomfortable armor. Um, there's, it, it's got a wonderful aesthetic to it. It just, the, yeah, the, the uh, grime is just so caked ter- into everything. Uh, the, the credited directors are Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, uh, who there, there's all kinds of different stories as to yeah. how they decided to let those two direct. And as, as it turns out, Terry Jones was really the director mm-hmm. and Terry Gilliam was more the production designer and oversaw yeah. some of like, and he did the animations and oversaw some elements of production. But Terry Jones was like the one like yelling. And it feels like God. a Terry Jones joint. It really does more if, than a Gilliam if, if joint. You know, if you know both of them as directors, yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to sort of like hazy photography and atmosphere, that's, Gilliam through and through. Yeah, the, but when the it comes aesthetic to, is very Gilliam. When it comes yeah. to sort of like the timing and the comedy, that's Terry Jones through and yep. through. All right, well, I guess we should move on. And hey, we might as well, since we're on a British TV right now, uh-huh. we might as well talk about a film that I am convinced is low-key, people don't talk about it enough, one of the funniest movies ever made. Okay. Sean the Sheep movie. <laughs> the Sean the Sheep movie is... If this had come out in 1921, uh-huh. and it could have, oh yes, very easily, um, it would be celebrated it, along it, the it works of be, Charlie Chaplin. Exactly, King. it, it yeah. would still be remembered to this day because yeah. this is an exemplary silent comedy. Yeah, there's uh, there's no dialogue, or rather, no intelligible dialogue. There, there's mumbling. Yeah, it's really like blah, 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 but like that's it. We don't we don't need that. Uh, and it is a story. The show is about uh, a young sheep named Sean. Uh, who was introduced in Wallace and Gromit, but this is kind of like a different universe. It's uh, doesn't have the same it was same in, character, different circumstances. Sean, yeah, Sean was introduced in A Close Shave, which was yeah. the third Wallace and Gromit short film. Yeah, uh, Wallace and Gromit, great by the way. Oh, I, wonderful! I'm a big fan of art. Every, would, everything Ardman has touched that yeah. I've seen, I've loved. Sands flushed away. I think yeah. it's a bad film. Uh, if Curse of the Where, if 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 uh, Wallace and Gromit were a proper TV show, which they've never really been, Curse of the Were-Rabbit would be on my list because it's a wonderful film as well, but it's not really. so. Uh, um, But yeah, Sean the Sheep was a a sheep character. Sean, if you say it with um, a a British accent, you can see the pun. Like Sean, like Sean the Sheep. sheep, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But in any case, uh, in the series, he lives on a farm with a kindly but kind of doltish farmer and uh the dog who is responsible for herding the sheep and is a bit of a stick in the mud that's you know it's all about the rules stern rule following not a bad guy but you know he's 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 middle management he's the bad guy you know like (laughs) uh but uh and and a bunch of sheep who just want to fuck around they're sheep Mm. that's all they want to (laughs) do and so at the start of this sean is like the the leader he's the one the idea sheep he's 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 a young clever idealist Mm. and so his whole thing at the beginning is he wants the sheep to have kind of a vacation and so he engineers a situation in which the sheep basically have free run of the house and in order to do that he just sends away the, the, the it's a long thing where like he gets the farmer like in a um uh, a trailer uh-huh. and he's just gonna the farmer's fucked off what he doesn't realize is that the trailer has like rolled down a hill and that he has rolled right into the center of like this big urban New York London mega metropolis and he has hit his head and got amnesia 
And because only the only thing he knows how to do is shear sheep, uh, he thinks he's a hairdresser, and he becomes a very popular hairdresser. Like, he, like my, my, hair se- my like sense sheep. memory, he can yeah. like, kind of remember how to shear a sheep. Uh, and as soon as they realize that the farmer is gone, the sheep have to travel into town, pretending to be humans, and try to rescue him. And so does the dog. Uh, every gag in this movie works. Every <laughs> single gag in this movie mm. is laugh. The bit where the sheep realize that they're hungry and the only way they know how to get food in a city is to go to a restaurant and they start right. eating the menus. But they try to be, to but they try to be on the people, down low yeah. about it, like that's like, fucking brilliant. Sean understands. Is like uh, Sean points to the people. It's like. And do what they're doing to the yeah. ship. Do do what those people are doing. So somebody drops a fork, and they all just throw a fork on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> great, yeah. great, great! Silent comedy. You don't mm. need any more about it. Uh, there's a whole bit where the dog finds out that the the farmer is in a hospital. And the dog's trying to sneak into the hospital, but there's no dogs allowed in the hospital. So he no in, dogs. Allowed. Yeah. So he impersonates a surgeon, and he comes this close <laughs> to having to perform surgery, <laughs> which is just the funniest. <laughs> It's, it's almost a dark moment. It's really weird because you know he's actually about to do it. He's because cut he's all, this but he also gets distracted by bones. Yes, <laughs> like, it's really fucking weird. Um, but uh, the piece de resistance is a joke that I'm gonna, I can try to describe it to you, but you kind of just have to see it for yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a bit where um, I forget—is it Sean or the dog? They they, they get caught by a dog catcher. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they're they're sent into the clink and like and we meet the, the, the prison dogs yeah, and, the, yeah. and the dogs and like the dog catchers like room full of dogs is like a prison movie and there's like a Hannibal Lecter dog and everything and then uh, they they sit in their cell and then they look across at them and what we see is a dog giving them a hard stare like you know like like the Paddington it is the single funniest image <laughs> it doesn't even the one, move the wild eyed dog it's not even animated it's a still image. <laughs> It is maybe the funniest image I have ever seen in a movie. You cut to that image, always funny. Mm. Every single time. Every gag has been... None of these... One of my problems with the comedy in the 21st century is that it feels really off the cuff. And don't get me wrong, I love a good ad lib. But um, it feels like we're just letting people riff, and if we find humor, cool. And if we don't, yeah. well, people can tell we well, tried. We'll, we'll let the funny people be yeah. funny for a while, and that, yeah. that is death. And we'll find it in the editing room. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of movies that have gotten away with it, but it's not great. Occasionally, the, but occasionally, like, it's you got a funny bit. But yeah, you, the better comedies are the ones where uh, they work a joke until it's funny. They, yeah, and they, so they know it's funny, they, they, and then they make it funny. They write it and they script it. Um, yeah, you know what? You know what's a great, maybe the best like studio comedy of the last ten years, Game Night. Yeah, because it was scripted. <laughs> it's a, that's a, and very tightly yeah. scripted, and everything about that movie works. Sean the Sheep is like that without any dialogue. Every yeah. single comedy bit sings. It is mm. hilarious, and uh, I think it's a um, modern comedy classic. People who've seen it tend to agree, mm. but not enough people saw it. There's a sequel called Farmageddon. It's okay. The original is a lot funnier. Yeah. Farmageddon is a riff on E.T. It's yeah. about a, a cute space alien. Yeah. It looks like a puppy. And it's fine. It's just not it's nearly funny. it's just not nearly as funny. I don't know. It's just mm. the jokes the jokes aren't quite as superlative. Well, I, I think because it Sean is separated from the sheep. Yeah. And it's about him dealing with the the alien rather than it's living more, on the farm. Yeah, it's and, more about uh, the plot than the comedic setups, really. Yeah. 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 You're, it's and, a good point, yeah. 
and uh, you know, it's about a, and the aliens like a little kid wants to eat a lot of candy. I, I f- feel like the aliens' propensity to candy is like a, a criticism of ET and the the Reese's yeah. Pieces thing because yeah, the the alien tries some candy and then just goes candy wild and starts like chugging soda <laughs> and like shoplifting candy from stores. I thought that but that kind of a funny idea. Fair enough. What's your um, What's your next pick? You, know you didn't what? pick um, Sean the Sheep, right? I don't. I did not pick Sean the Sheep. Okay. Uh, but I agree with everything you said. I think Fair it enough. is an excellent movie. Um. I'm going to change my list a little bit. Uh, when we recorded yeah. this the first time, um, I, I mentioned this film, and I'm not going to. Any- I mentioned a film, I'm not going to mention it I, anymore. There's a couple of mine that I've decided mm. in retrospect, a couple of films I would have rather yeah, put so, on there, so this worked out for the best. So um, I'm going to go with another uh, child-friendly uh, British property. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with Thunderbirds Are Go. Oh my god. Yes! <laughs> what? Yes! You're talking about, was this a Jonathan um, Frakes movie? No, not th- that's just Thunderbirds. Oh, okay. Not the Jonathan Frakes movie. Not not like the the live action reboot. They did a live action reboot in like 2004, 2005 around there and okay. um that was uh, directed by Jonathan Frakes and had Ben Kingsley in it. It was live action, live actors. Yeah. Uh that's uh, that movie's abysmal. Okay, just not double checking. Just double cuz my 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 going was based on that. Okay, no. I'm um, still not a huge fan of Marionation, but this is... There's, this, there's, I, I understand your love of it more than I would understand loving uh, the Jonathan Frakes Thunderbirds. There's there's something uh, just about um, sort of my childhood self yeah. who uh, liked to surf around in the UHF stations on his old black and white television <laughs> looking for uh, bizarre things. And Super Marionation, the Jerry Anderson stuff. Uh, Jerry and Sylvie Anderson developed this uh, filmmaking technique that they called Super Marionation. It's mm. just a puppet show. It's yeah. marionettes with um, faces that aren't really articulate. Like the mouths kind yeah. of beat a little bit and, and the eyes swivel. Uh, they didn't really walk around because they're marionettes. So they're like kind of sitting around a lot. Mm. But what they got was a certain kind of vehicle fetish uh, that I think <laughs> a lot of little kids have. This sort of fascination yeah. with big labs and big buildings and rocket ships. And there's mm. something really appealing about this kind of vehicle fetish that uh, the Thunderbirds really kind of understood. Uh, So the opening of Thunderbirds are go the 1966 feature film based on the super marination program Thunderbirds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not just repurposed episodes. It's a whole new thing. It's it's a whole new thing. I've actually never seen the movie. There's there's a musical number in it. There's new sets. There's, there's a new vehicle. What's the Um, musical number about? Traveling through space. (laughs) It's uh, it's not as catchy as the fireball XL five theme song. Uh, Oh, of course not. Surely you know that one. I'm not a fan. I want go? to be a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'll travel down the universe and Fireball XL5. You don't know that one? No. Uh, anyway, it's <laughs> maybe I'm just old enough to have sort of accumulated uh, I, that. I one. watch a lot of old British TV. Uh, I watch a lot of old TV in general. You can't see everything. This one just slipped me by. Uh, yeah, it's, it's I never fine, watched Flipper either. Yeah, this, I'm never, sure you know I've never seen an episode. I've never of seen Flipper. a single episode. It was a huge show. Hmm. It was on in reruns for some reason. Never uh, saw it. I, I saw Lassie, but I never saw Flipper. Exactly. Um, so, like, there's always something in okay. this. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Thunderbirds Argo, it's sort of like a, a kid-friendly spy story. Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's this brand new vehicle, and, it, you know, the opening scene of this movie is a lot of slow-moving action shots of, like, this vehicle slowly assembling on an airfield, and, like, mm-hmm. these little trucks are pushing it together. I think that gives it a good sense of scale, we understand okay. that this is a big, complicated machine. That's a sense of scale you don't even get in modern blockbusters. Mm. They just launch a gigantic ship and it just sort of flies away. It's it's CGI. It's really insubstantial. Uh, they actually had to build it for something like Thunderbirds Argo. And uh, 
even though the characters are all marionettes and they're not very expressive and they're kind of bland hero types, mm-hmm. uh, you, you at least understand that they're part of this big operational machine. And of course, then there's uh, Miss Penelope, who is sort of the standout. She's voiced by Sylvia Anderson. Yeah. She's the one who's not part of International Rescue, which is the, the central team of Thunderbirds, the ones right. who fly the Thunderbirds, who are the great uh, rocket machines. Uh, the Thunderbirds themselves are uh, of the, the Tracy family. They're a family of brothers. They each pilot a different Thunderbird. There's five of them. In Thunderbird 6, there's a sixth. Uh, the sequel to the movie was called Thunderbird 6, just to confuse everybody. Mm. Um, but it's about the sixth Thunderbird. And the, they are called Thunderbirds. Their ships are called the Thunderbirds. And their job is to just rescue people. In that Saturday morning sort of well, way. In a Paw Patrol kind if, of way. Yeah, in a Paw Patrol yeah. sort of way. They, there's a they satellite. Don't, they don't they, avenge the wicked or anything. They don't no, like, they're, yeah, there's they're, people yeah. in trouble. They have this uh, you know, panoply of machines, and they just go around the world saving people. And, of course, this angers the tyrants of the world, and there's some bad guys who want to sabotage them. And uh, the plot of the movie is about sabotage of this new machine. Um, the plot isn't the point. The visuals are the point. And I love... Uh, I love just the way they, that they sort of realize this human experience through these little marionettes. I love the way the vehicles look. Uh, there's just something really pleasing deep down. The, mm. the inner seven-year-old in me just yeah. really, really loves the Thunderbirds. Um, it might seem a little slow-paced to a modern kid, mm-hmm. uh, but there is something kind of quietly grand yeah. about watching these little puppets uh, yeah. go about these action sequences. Well, you know, speaking about uh, mm. uh, vehicle fetishes. Okay. Speaking about uh, the grand, but not the quiet. <laughs> uh, this is one where you, you know, you said, oh, was the Adam Sandler really count? Because it's based on a TV show, but the TV show is based on a comic. I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, and I'm going to pick uh, the Wachowskis Speed Racer. <laughs> Good choice. Speed Racer was not was a was a serialized manga from 1966. At least is when it started, and it very quickly became a television series, like one year later. Uh, and it was one of the first anime series to really uh, catch fire in America. It, it uh, between Speed Racer and Gigantor. Yeah, uh, those were the first... and like Astro Boy, I think eventually. Uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, those were like, like some of the first. Um, Japanese animated uh, exports yeah. that really got any kind of popularity in the U.S. Yeah, and they were redubbed over here, and um, and you know it's limited animation, but compared to today, but there's a lot of energy and style and creativity in it. And it's a story of a of a young teenager named uh, Speed Racer, whose name is Speed Racer. His last name is Racer. His first name is Speed. Couldn't become a chef with that name. Nope, yeah. you know exactly where you're going. Um, and uh, his pop. Pops Racer uh, has basically engineered the ultimate racing machine with a lot of cool gadgets in it mm-hmm. to help with like cross country races full of death defying stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And he gets in one race after another, and there's a series of mysteries and bad guys involved in the races. And it's not super complicated. No, in fact, the animation is incredibly crude, yeah. especially by today. Even well, the, the animation the time... and the storytelling isn't super mm-hmm. complicated either. The closest thing they have to like a real. Like, oh, an arc is, uh, there's always this one guy in the race, a mysterious racer we never see called Racer X. And Racer X is definitely not Speed Racer's long-lost brother. Racer X definitely not um, Speed, uh, under no circumstances <laughs> is Racer X Speed Racer's, how dare you um, suggest that I, he's Speed Racer's long-lost this, brother. This is hilarious. I just looked up where you can watch original episodes of Speed uh-huh. Racer, uh, just to see if it was online anywhere. Uh-huh. Uh, you can get it on Funimation. Okay. And you can get it on Motor Trend. 
That's hilarious. There's a Motor Trend channel yeah. and they have Speed Racer. Anyway, I, I grew up watching Speed Racer. Speed Racer was like on late at night on like basic cable a lot of the time. Like if you were up at like right. 10.30 on like TBS or something like that, it'd be on. Um, and uh, yeah, and they, they tried to make a, a feature film out for a long time. And who ended up making it? But the Wachowskis, the people who brought you The Matrix. Uh, and their vision of Speed Racer was exactly Speed Racer. It was extremely simplified extremely stylish, extremely energetic, and extremely fun. Um, the film stars Emile Hirsch as Speed Racer. He t- he lives in a candy-colored universe. It's like the whole universe was invented by Hasbro. Like, everything yeah, about I, it is larger than oh life gosh. and ridiculous, and all the colors are just... You know, like, when you're watching, like, an old Technicolor movie, like The Avengers of Robin Hood, and then you see, like, Will Scarlet, and you realize your screen can't handle that shade of red? <laughs> That's every color in Speed Racer is punched up to the to um, fucking 12 hold on I, I i know it's it's not good form to um mm. to quote other reviews but let me look up um one of the critics uh, who reviewed speed racer when it first came out uh used the phrase ultra turquoise <laughs> is the new black yeah and uh, l- let me look up who that was please look up who that their, was their but that's proper, that's a great way to put it th- their proper dude yeah. and it's a story about someone who was who's a young idealist who wants to basically make art with their car and they almost get bought out by a huge corporation but they decide to stick it out and the corporation decides to destroy them because capitalism yeah it's not a complicated material the wachowskis would go on to try to explore this in a more complicated way in jupiter ascending people did not appreciate that they went back to the matrix and Anyway, Speed Racer as a movie, ultra simplified, sometimes to a fault. I would this is not my number one for a reason, but it is an absolute adrenaline shot to cinema. It is an attempt to basically push cinema, in particular visual effects cinema, away from how realistic can we make it? <laughs> how real can this be? I, and make it instead. Oh. How stylish can we make it? Hmm. How creative can we make it? It's not about doing something that's never been done before. It's not about doing something that we believe, per se. Uh-huh. But it's about doing something that looks so unbelievably fantastic that you can't take your eyes off of it. Yeah. And the fact that the story is so simple, it works, but it's simple, means it gets out of the way of that. Hmm. If it was more complicated, it would just be too much. It'd be too much of an overload. Um Speed Racer is one of the great watches. Like you just have to see it. If you ever get a chance to see it on the big screen and you haven't, you must. Mm. Please do. It would be the best thing ever. When you did you come yeah, up I, with a I found the review, uh, but because of it was published in the LA Weekly. Oh. And because of the uh dark machinations and politics of who owns that now, you can't even tell the who review was. is credited to staff. Fuckers. So I, I cannot give proper credits to the actual uh, critic who wrote this, but uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we came up with the phrase "ultra turquoise is the new black." Well, that's but, a good expression. If anyone yeah. knows, please let us know. Um, uh, the, the the movie projects a Candyland topography of lava lamp skies and Hello Kitty clouds, part middle earth, part mental breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there's there's no other movie visually like an in quote unquote live action. Hmm. And I use air quotes because a lot of it's CG. Uh, like Speed Racer. At least, hmm. especially not in America. The, uh, and it's really just a gorgeous, I, I sumptuous uh, sort of... Again, it's just for your eyes. It's not yeah, for your given, head. Given their ages, I'm guessing the Wachowskis probably watched Speed Racer when they were young. I would imagine they uh, would. And, but I don't know if, if they're like fans of Speed Racer. Yeah. Or if they decided Speed Racer was just the thing to adapt at the time. Yeah. Um, I do know that they tried to 
maintain a lot of the corniness of the original show. Yeah. A lot of that, that they're not trying to lend a lot of depth to something as shallow as Speed Racer. And they're not trying to modernize it either. No. They're letting it be in its storytelling realm. It's mm. the same type of storytelling, and, uh, and just in, with a different kind of paint. And in fact, um, one of the things they did for crowd scenes in Speed Racer, because it was an incredibly cheap show to animate. Yeah. So what they would do is they would take a crowd shot and they just reprint it several times in one frame. Yeah. So you see so the it's, same it's people four, cheering. Four quadrants like, yeah. of the same crowd. Uh, the Wachowskis did that digitally. They yeah. had one little bit of a crowd and they just repeated it a yeah. bunch deliberately so that you would actually see like parallels throughout the crowd yeah. as this weird visual homage to the original cartoon. Yeah. Uh, when Pops Racer gets mad, he shakes his fists the same way that like really stodgy animation from the original would. Yeah. When, uh, when Pops Racer fights a guy, he picks him up and spins him over his head like in a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. Um, every every angle and every choice meant to make this look like a live action cartoon and there are moments in this there are moments in speed racer where i think they push it too far there's a bit where um uh oh, what's the name of the kid uh, spritle spritle and chim spritle and chim chim the, the fucking scrappy do of this universe <laughs> they are they're 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 mostly fine except for a bit at the beginning where they're like going, they're being wined and dined by this big racing corporation that wants to sign Speed Racer to a contract. Mm-hmm. And Spridal is basically given free reign with the candy cart. And so, on top of this movie, which already feels like a Starburst commercial <laughs> with like a $1 billion budget, <laughs> on top of that, now you've got a kid and a chimpanzee who have just taken, like, who just overdosed on sugar and they're just careening around the walls mm. like like nobody's business they're, they're, uh, that they're, bit is that bit pushes the 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 intensity of the movie too far even and, for and me do you, do you remember the music cue when they're oh, going wild and vaguely they're, they're, it's, it's freebird yeah it's during that big guitar solo in freebird yeah. like yeah yeah what a wild music cue fucking weird spritle racer and fucking chim chim (laughs) have overdosed on gummy worms and are driving through a candy colored Willy Wonka nightmare to Freebird. look Look, uh, you know you know you know you know you know you know who never did that scene hmm. Bergman it's that good it's better than Bergman (laughs) what what I see well and the the weird thing about uh, Speed Speed Racer came out in 2008 and uh, you'll see that Hollywood blockbusters have been inevitably creeping towards it ever since. Yeah, this is a, a film that's way ahead of its time in terms of uh, cutting, aesthetic, mm. mm-hmm. uh, the use of special effects, the use of color. You look at something like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Part Two, which has a yeah. lot of wild colors. In oh it. yeah, they owe a lot to Speed um, Racer. Yeah, that it's like we're we're halfway to Speed Racer by mm-hmm. now. Yeah, and and you know, give it another decade, and we'll finally have caught up with what the Wachowskis were doing in two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an mm. astounding accomplishment. Again, especially visually, narratively, you want to say mm. it's thin. You want to say the characters are underwritten. Yeah, it's a choice. Is it a good choice? Maybe, maybe not. Mm. But it's an incredible achievement, regardless. Mm. Uh, next up, what's your what's your next? Luca, uh, we're we're good, buddy. We don't need you to do that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I this is not. Uh... This is a, a, a film, an animated film based okay. on an animated series. I got, uh, as, I got a couple more of those myself. Not as wildly uh, creative or colorful or exciting to look at uh, as Speed Racer. In fact, the whole uh, aesthetic of South Park was deliberately oh, crude. Uh, right. the, the whole idea was let's have crude cutout papers uh, say really shocking things. That was kind of the pitch for South Park. 
it's difficult to stress how uh, how daring and original and and wild and outrageous South Park felt when it first aired. Yeah, because now 90s. it feels like an institution. It's been around it's, for it's over well over two and, decades. And now, indeed, you know? the creators of South Park, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Uh, have become increasingly bitter and nihilistic and even libertarian in their viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So the show has changed to match that. Uh, And they became incredibly bitter. So by the time they were even making something like Team America... They were criticizing everybody. There was no yeah. correct there, there point was, of view in the world anymore. There was there was no point really yeah. to be made anymore. There, there were just uh, everything is. You go back to the yeah. Er, everything the is first, equally shit. The first Luca, uh, several Luca. years of the well, show, leading up to the now. movie, which came out in 1999, yeah. uh, there was actually like a, a definite moral standpoint that there was right and wrong in this universe. It was a bizarre, crass, disgusting universe yeah. where you know. This is South Park, but occasionally a, a, a 90 foot tall robot of Barbara Streisand would lay waste to the town. Right. Uh, but it had, but it had Chris, as, Eddie, as Eddie Izzard put, yeah. uh, principles. No, oh, there were right, actually, actually some yeah. principles in it. Yeah. Ne- never mind that uh, the Christmas imp in this universe is a literal turd. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Hanky, the Christmas poo. Howdy, huh? Yeah. You know, this is the kind of idiocy that they were dealing with, but there was actually principle. And I feel like uh, when by the time they made the movie, they were firing on all cylinders. Yeah. They had the principles. They had the shock humor down. It was a movie, so they could be even crasser than they were before. Yeah, they were. They were. The basic cable the, was giving uh, them a lot of free reign, but hmm. I mean, they they came. They are they are wielding cuss words uh-huh. like ninja weapons. Like they're actually like pretty. Uh, like throwing a lot of, of profanity at you in mm-hmm. a really kind of skilled way where it actually is funny rather yeah. than merely being crass. Well, also reminding you that profanity is supposed to be profane. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, when, when they, when they, when, when they go to the Terrence and Philip movie and they sing the most profane song, mm. uh, ever. Uh, <laughs> and it's, and it's absurd and silly and it's relatively harmless and, and it's, it's fine. And it's catchy. And it's very catchy. <laughs> that's sing it at the, that's the genius of this movie. The songs are all bangers. The, the songs are, all are of the songs are good. Dead on. They're done by yeah. Mark Shaman, who yeah. done a lot of Broadway and, uh, um, yeah, but uh, my point is this: that that song is horrendously profane. Hmm. The joke is that it's horrendously profane. You get that that's the point, and yet a part of you is still just saying, "Well, that's just profane." That is. So it, it's 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 warm and shocking at the same time. Yeah, and and that's sort of the like that magical alchemy that happened with South Park: Bigger, Longer, Run Cut. Yeah. Even even the title is a penis joke, and um, yeah, the. Uh, that they're able to have all of this skilled music and weaponized profanity presented in such a way where it actually is shocking, but is also kind of playful. Yeah, because the idea of the movie is that uh, Terrence and Phillip, these TV uh, characters from... In, in, uh, they're, they're, they're TV stars from Canada, mm-hmm. and they're the kids' favorite uh, TV stars. They've come up with their own movie, much like South Park, Big mm-hmm. and Longer and Uncut. The movie and is a story of the movie the, itself, Yeah, and the movie but, is incredibly profane, and the idea is that the movie is so profane the, that the it has... kids start cussing casually. Kids start cussing casually, and they start emulating things they see in the movie that are not to, meant to be emulated. And a kid dies, and parents say, what about the children? And they're all up in arms about uh, violence and profanity mm-hmm. in the media, and it leads to America going down the uh, rabbit hole to censorship, fascism, mm-hmm. war. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's and the, that's, the, the yeah. last line of the song "Blame Canada" is yeah. uh, pretty telling because uh, we we must blame them and cause a fuss before somebody thinks of blaming us. Yeah, uh, as as the parents who are putting us up a stink of all this. Yeah, uh, everything's really really great, and I think by the time we get to Satan, who's a character in the movie, yeah, uh, singing the ballad in the movie, yeah. which is called "Up There." Yeah, the the South Park mm. equivalent of uh, "Part of Your World." Mm. Or, or Beauty and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe not Beauty and the Beast. Maybe it's more about... Um, I the, want the, adventure in the great whatever that yeah, is. Yeah, the, yeah, the, um, the opening tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the I, I want more. I want to be up there. It's, yeah. it's a very Disney song. And it's about it's Satan singing about how great he wants to be up there in, yeah. in the, up the there, living world. There's, there's so, so much room. Yeah. Where baby's birth and yeah. flowers bloom. And it even hits Everyone a high note. dreams <laughs> I can dream too. <laughs> Oh, oh, I want to believe. Yeah, it's so yeah. Sorry. It's so sp- <laughs> it, 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 it's it's in that moment where the movie moves yeah. from like kind of a a clever witty movie into something yeah. that's I think kind of genius. Yeah. Um, s- the name of South Park has been a little tainted by what's come since uh, yeah. because a lot of the show has become really embittered about the world and yeah. uh, it, has it, 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 ceased it, to have a, a point of view. It, it's it's like it well it's like it had this weird apocalyptic moderate stance where the mm. only thing that's really destroying the world if you watch if you is, watch is south park, anything, if you watch yeah. south park especially from the 2000s if you watch south park and really mainline it you realize that the show does have a philosophy and that mm. philosophy is the worst thing you could possibly do is care too much is, is care about anything for, yeah for even a second yeah. because if you care about something you're the one who's going to create a problem with it because caring about things leads to fanaticism ergo mm. not caring about things even if it's something that is literally mm. destroying mm. the world is the absolute best way to go and uh, that's I, uh, not Good. I understand that you know Trey Parker and Matt Stone are, are two bitter old Gen Xers. They you know, yeah. who were raised in the sort of ethos of not caring, being really cool. And the frustrating thing is, when they were younger, they actually had a little bit more of a stance. Yeah, they had something to fight for. And as they got older, a little bit more of that youthful Gen Xerness mm-hmm. of hipster nihilism. It became more about Beca- yeah, It became more about is, being the first one to tell the Twitter joke than being the first one to have anything to say about what's actually yeah, going on. And and as yeah. such, um. And again, if you're going to make a piece of art with that point of view, that's fine. But coming to it week after week, year after year, and this like Mm. long running TV series, it gets incredibly tiresome. Yeah. Uh, And it, it, that that hipster nihilism isn't something that you really want to sort of tune in and see week after week. You can't yeah. stay and bitter. And it's forever. definitely not something you want to build a culture around, yeah. which is yeah. why so, the South Park's extreme influence is mm. something that we're going to have to reckon with at some point. Yeah. You know, it, if we, it, we should so be reckoning with it now because it's, it's, mm. it's, it's, it has it's, some effects. I, from what I understand, I haven't seen a lot of the newer South Park is still going. Uh, yeah, I, they're, they're on Paramount plus now. And yeah. uh, from what I understand, uh, a point of view has come like they've kind of come back around. They have a little bit more of a point of view, but Maybe. I haven't seen it to, to yeah. confirm that. But I think right when that movie came out in 1999, just everything was working really great. I mm-hmm. think that movie's really brilliant. I think it's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. I think it does still have the ability to shock, which is rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I appreciate it on, on everything that it's able to do well. And, so and South listen, Park, bigger, bigger, longer and uncut, I think is quite a good. If you film. want to say that that's you, if you even said mm-hmm. to me that you think that that's the South Park masterpiece, I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to go, I have a couple of animated movies. I might as well go to one now. And it's, it's uh, pretty much as far from South Park as you can get mm. uh, because it's very family friendly, but it's also a film that I respect a lot, not because it's necessarily the best movie ever based on a TV series, but because I think it's a movie that elevated the, the show 
Okay. It's not just bigger than the show. It's not like, oh, we can do more. It's actually saying, hey, that show, that was nice. But we're going to do a movie version of this. And we're going to do it in a way that actually really makes you appreciate and care about the characters and their relationships more than the show ever did. And that is a goofy movie. Oh, interesting choice. Yeah, I thought about this. This one wasn't originally on my list. And I was realizing, I'm like, no, this one's important, actually. I think this is definitely worth singling out. Um, a Goofy movie was based off of the TV series Goof Troop, which is part of the Disney Afternoons, which mm-hmm. had shows like Chippendales Rescue Rangers and DuckTales and Darkwing Duck. Darkwing Duck. And the difference between Goof Troop and those other shows is Goof Troop was a sitcom. Yeah. Goof Troop was like Blossom or Boy Meets World. It was a sitcom yeah. about a kid who had a dippy dad. The uh, the the ethos of the Disney Afternoon was uh, to repurpose mm-hmm. old Disney properties, these yeah. old characters, in a slightly different in, way. in a new genre. Yeah. So Chip and Dale, who were just troublemaking chipmunks for mm-hmm. Donald Duck, became spies. Yeah, uh, no, nah, they weren't spies. Or, they, were, or they, they were adventurers. There was one of them was uh, they, it was they, Indiana Jones and they, Magnum PI. Indiana, I, I was actually going to compare them to the A-Team, sort of like yeah. freelance helpers. Yeah, basically, uh, yeah. Uh, Darkwing Duck was uh, sort of a repurposing of a DuckTales in a lot of ways. Well, it was, but, it was um, a spin-off of DuckTales, because yeah. Launchpad's uh, in both. But like, Duck, basically it's, DuckTales it's, what was, if, what if uh, Ebenezer Scrooge from uh, the Disney Christmas Carol was his own character and lived in a city and could uh, could go on adventures? To be, to be fair, that was based on a comic book series about him. That, yeah, that, there was, okay. that, that was based you on, the, on the strip. Fair, you, you are yeah. correct. DuckTales um, was a faithful basement of the strip, but the, the Darkwing uh, Duck was, hey, what if we took that universe and put Batman in it? Yeah. What's, what's what's the Disney universe version of Batman? And Boom, there we go. Duck. Uh, uh, Tailspin is even uh, weirder. I, I was going to say, Tailspin was the most bizarre concept. Let's take characters from the Jungle Book, the 1967 film, uh-huh. and remake uh, Only Angels Have Wings, the really well-known 1934 <laughs> film with Clark Gable. Uh, mm-hmm. and Make it about a yeah, bear who's a pilot a in the Caribbean. A, a delivery pilot in the Caribbean. Yeah. Okay. The best thing they ever did, put Shere Khan in a business suit. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god thank um, you style icon of my entire childhood but you'll notice that these are all a little bit more adventurous yeah. kind of genres and goof troop was let's put goofy at, in a sitcom he's a like, sitcom dad goofy's now. a single dad we're not really gonna talk about what happened to the mom and his son is trying to be a normal kid and his dad's a doofus and, and this is a very yeah, so, common sitcom so he has a, a, a like a he's about 12 a 12 year old yeah. son who and, is just starting to be concerned with being cool. He's concerned with being cool and he's embarrassed but by his, his parents. Something goofy. something I'm sure everyone can sympathize with on some level or another. Um, and the show was fine. I never really watched it because it never really made a big impact. It was just kind of, you know, its heart was in the right place, but it never really did anything. Mm. Um, a goofy movie, a movie that uh, kind of got almost flushed by Disney. Like they really barely released it and has in the last 25 years... Uh, developed a very, very powerful cult following for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons. If, um, if, if you were a certain age when Goof Troop came out, you're probably yeah. on its side. Yeah, but I think it, it, it holds up better than a lot of other things. Uh, and they decided to do this story about uh, a road trip between Goofy and his son Max. Mm-hmm. Goofy believes uh, that his son Max is like on the path to becoming a delinquent. And wants to go on a wholesome family trip, not on like a National Lampoon vacation. Uh, Meanwhile, Max is deceiving his father in order to go to a concert and impress a girl. Uh, Not... What was the name of the star? Oh, like, Powerline. Powerline. Who's basically like a a combination between like Bobby Brown and Prince. Um, And uh, it's about their relationship. It is about 
the intensity of the relationship of a hormonal of a hormonal kid who wants nothing to do with his dad mm-hmm. and a dad who wants nothing more than to connect with his son. And that's not something Disney makes movies about. And it works. Well, they, they made a whole sitcom about it. They made a whole yeah. sitcom, but movies. This, this is not an this is not an event film from Disney. And ironically, it hits a lot harder than a lot of the other more popular Disney movies of the era. Uh, certainly of the late po- uh, Renaissance and post Renaissance. Mm. Um, the actual relationship between Max and Goofy is really tender and complicated, and I appreciate that. And I think they do a really, really good job of illustrating that. Um, it has also been written by people infinitely smarter than I and with more uh, connection to the material than I that although it's done through coding, uh, a Goofy movie is the first Disney animated film to speak about the black experience. Mm. And uh, the uh, the idea is that a lot of the specific parameters of the storyline and Max's relationship with his father uh, are stories of people of color who mm. you know the idea that like the, a principal is telling you oh you're you're your kid mm. not the other kids your kid is a problem child yeah, it's, it's your the, kid the one is on the, one the track to criminality yeah and the idea is that yeah and so that's something that is mm. sadly something a lot of people are familiar with um power line is very much a, a, a you know it, 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 it I, I, again, there's so much been written about that, and it's not my field. It's not my lane. I'm not going to say it, although I do think it's worth mentioning. So please do the additional research. Um, but um, it just it is an effective father son coming of age story, oh, yeah. and I think it's very sweet. I think it's very memorable, and I think what it does more than almost any other movie on my list is it takes a show that was fine and makes it memorable and kind of powerful and actually elevates it. Okay, and I think that's what's really, really great about it. So, uh, so I had, I think, I felt like it deserved a spot. All right, all I, right. I, I have no strong feelings one way or the other. Well, you only just saw it movie. recently. For I the saw first it for time. the, yeah, I saw it for the first time recently. We did a commentary track about it. In fact, yeah. Um, like a lot of uh, films that came out of the Disney canon at any time, uh, I've, there's not a lot of edge to it. I mm. feel like there's not a lot of uh, passion behind the character. I think it's pretty, pr- pretty bland film. Mm. Um, I wish it were like funnier in some way. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it's yeah. ostensibly a comedy film, but maybe not. It's, it's just sort it's of this. A little, it's a little innocuous yeah. in some regards, but I think that's part of it, though. I think mm. the idea is that this is a story about someone whose dad is dull. Yeah, but, but you know? his dad is Goofy. I've seen Goofy cartoons. <laughs> Go- Goofy welcomes chaos and disorder that's, and destruction. It's a different and there's, version there's of There's not a lot of that. In it's the, a different the version of Goofy. Whatever, it's yeah. fine. I see your point, but yeah. I, I disagree. Moving on. Uh, just important as cultural, uh, just as important a cultural icon as Goofy is Batman. Ah. Uh, and we're doing a whole sitcom devoted to Batman. We've talked about uh, the 1966 version of Batman uh-huh. uh, t- at great length. So I won't go too much into Batman other than to say I love it. Uh, um, but which Batman? The 1966 version of Batman. Just double checking. There's but, a couple yeah. of different versions that are based on shows. The, uh, I guess Mask of the Phantasm is also direct. Mask of the Phantasm, Return um, of the Joker is, it's a TV movie, but like it's oh, still a movie, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, I'm talking about the Leslie H. Martinson film from 1966 that was made in between the first and second seasons of the original, uh, television series. Uh, it opens with, a. A thank you letter to people who love having fun, which is, I, I feel like it's a middle finger into the future of what Batman was to become. Mm. Because Batman, as time passes, has become uh, self-serious. Yeah, increasingly dramatic and very, very uh, dark and very focused on death and angst and misery. 
uh, and violence. And you look back to a television series where Batman would put trunks on over his outfit so he could do a surfing contest with the Joker who put trunks on over his tuxedo yeah. so they could surf next to each you other. You don't want your crotch or your tuxedo to get wet. This is a TV show where they went up against Liberace and his imaginary actual twin brother. Uh, this is a, a, a universe where fun is the actual very fabric of everything and everything's really campy and strange and colorful and joyous. And the, the supervillain's plot is to dehydrate world leaders and keep them in little vials while they've uh, set up all these really elaborate things like uh, projectors that can project imaginary ships and a, a submarine that's in the shape of a penguin. And their plan is to fire missiles into the air that write riddles in the sky and to lure Batman into a bad guy lair where they'll be pro- shot, uh, into shot out o- of a window into the arms octopus. of an exploding yeah. octopus. Yeah. Uh, every, like it doesn't even have a little kid logic. There's no logic at all to this thing. It is just, it's like if James Joyce read too many comic books, just a weird, <laughs> strange stream of consciousness. And then the Riddler said this kind mm-hmm. of, uh, kind of logic to this movie. Well, the idea and is, it is it's, so joyous and so much yeah. fun that it's hard not to be infected by it. It's, it's a really funny movie. It's a really, really endearing movie in a lot of ways. And I think it's worth remembering that unlike a lot of the sh- movies that we're talking about here, most of which were made right after or years after, uh, mm. the shows were on the air. Uh, this came out after the first season of Batman. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was South, super, yeah. South Park was also made during the production. Yes, that's I was going to mention that. I think Thunderbirds well, yeah. or Go was also made during the production of yeah. the TV series. But a lot of the uh, ones that we're yeah. talking about are not. And granted, yes, there are exceptions. Um, but this one was like this. This was like at the height of Batman uh-huh. as a TV series. Like it was, even season two, the ratings were about to go down. But this was like prime choice. And this was like, hey, what if we had money? What would what we, we do? Do, do a little we, bit of a we, larger we, story. We can afford to get all of these actors in the exact same story. Well, let's put them all in the fucking same story. Let's get a penguin submarine. Let's get a Batman helicopter. Let's do all kinds of like weird, wild stuff. And they do it. Batman fights a shark. Thank goodness he brought his anti-shark repellent. He's, uh, you know, hey, be, hey be you prepared. laughed, but it worked out, didn't it? You laughed. You laughed mm-hmm. at the anti-shark repellent. But who's were, laughing now? It? There was a shark. Who's and, laughing uh, now? There was... Um, the shark also explodes. There's a, another another Batman film called The Dark Knight Rises, which uh, I, I want to think somewhere in my mind that, yeah. that Christopher Nolan <laughs> was paying homage to the original Batman film uh, because at the end of The Dark Knight Rises, Batman picks up a, a nuclear bomb. And it's a big sphere. And it's a big ball. And he picks it up with like a crane on a plane and flies it way out over the ocean, trying to get it away from the city and uh, flies it over to Metropolis because they're right across the river from each other and uh, and lets it blow up. Mm -hmm. He got rid of the bomb. Yeah, thank God. Thank goodness. Everyone, some, everyone some, in Gotham because, survived because unless as, the prevailing winds were off Because that day. As, as we learned from 1966, sometimes you can't. And uh, sometimes <laughs> you just can't get rid of a bomb uh, because one of the... Uh, like Sean the Sheep, this is something that comes out of like a Harold Lloyd film. Yeah. Where Batman is running around a pier holding a gigantic comically large bomb with a fuse burning. He's holding it up above his head, trying to dispose of it. And every time he tries to dispose of it, something gets in his way. Oh, there's a... There's you a, there's can't a throw gr- it here. There's some lovers in a boat. Yeah, so you can't throw it in the water. You can't right? throw it here. There's a bunch the, of nuns walking there's, there's, down a pier. There's a marching band. Oh, no, there's ducklings over yeah. here. You can't even harm a duck. And then he finally looks up and he says one of the greatest lines in movie history... Yeah. 
some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> that bit. That bit. I'm not as high on this movie as you are, but I'm going to say right now, that bit mm-hmm. is one of the all-time funniest bits in movie history. I'm putting it right up there. It is maybe in my top two or three. I still think the funniest one ever is from Mel Brooks's The History of the World Part 1, where uh, mm. Moses comes down from the mountain <laughs> carrying three large stone slabs. Mm. And he says, The Lord has given unto you these 15, crash, uh, 10, <laughs> Drops one of 10 the commandments. Because A, the timing of it is perfect. Mm. B, it's a brilliantly conceived joke. And C, it explains a lot. And that's why it's great. Mm. Uh, the Batman joke doesn't explain anything, but it is perfect. It's a wonderfully, brilliantly conceived gag where someone is trying to do the right thing and absolutely cannot. Mm. And just fate keeps stepping in the way constantly. Um, this movie is charming as fuck. The cast is really, really great. Everyone's super invested in it. Uh, Lee Merriweather is probably going to go down in history as one of the weaker cat women, which is a shame because oh, she's well, quite good. I, 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 I think, I, I think, I think Julie um, Newmar and Eartha Kitt are probably better yeah, known they, from the original series. They, they and then got to Michelle Pfeiffer and in, Anne Hathaway are great. And, yeah, they, they got to camp it up in the show. They're definitely yeah. funnier. Um, I, I feel like Lee Merriweather like actually got to play a part in this one. She's one of the only characters who is like a character. She actually gets to like kind of fall in love with Bruce Wayne. It's not great, but it works. Um, Leading to another one of the sublime moments in the movie where uh, he learns that uh, Bruce Wayne learns that he's been betrayed. Oh yeah. And he looks at the camera for a full minute (laughs) while sad music plays. I kid you not. It's a full minute. I don't think it's a full minute. I, I, th- I think the time is at least 48 seconds. It's anyway. a long time for that to happen. Anyway, uh, but here, here's the only reason why it's not on my list. Uh, because mm. as much as, as funny as it is, as much as I like it, I think it burns out pretty quick. I think uh, by the last <laughs> 20, th- I think by the last 20, 30 minutes of this movie, they're kind of just spinning their wheels a bit. There's a lot more fighting and like chases and they're not as inspired as they were at the beginning. Although I do love that the, at the end when Batman and Robin, like they they fuck up, they (laughs) they fuck up really bad because the penguin had like, uh, disintegrated the United nations and like put them into like big pools of powder and you just add water and they'd be fine. But no one had done that yet. And they've been, but, uh, Batman and Robin put them all together again and they water them. And, but it turns out all of their brains have been switched. And then instead of, like, trying to figure out a way to fix that, they just, like, flee through the window, like, mm. this is someone else's yeah, problem. We, we should probably get out of here Which now. is very unlike Batman and Robin, mm. actually, in that series, where they, like, shy away from responsibility. But uh, it is funny. Mm. It is very, very funny. And anyway, I like it a lot. It's not It's not my favorite uh, Batman movie. It's not even my favorite Batman movie based on a TV series, which that segues quite nicely into my pick, uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Oh, okay. Which is a great movie. Uh, also came out while the show was still on the air. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, Paul Dini was uh, uh, told to come up with a Batman animated series to tie into the suddenly enormously popular live-action Batman movies. And his take uh, was to crib the style of the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons. Uh, a lot of but, sharp angles. To kind of remix it with Tim Burton. Yeah, a little bit of Tim Burton, a lot of Max Fleischer, a lot of sharp angles... A lot of very retro styles in terms of costume and production design. You know, the look of Gotham was very 1930s, 1940s. Um, A lot of old-timey gangster stuff straight out of Dick Tracy. Um, And what he ended up creating with his whole crew of writers, you know, Paul Dini and a bunch of brilliant people were working on that show. I don't want to give all credit to Paul Dini. Um, 
was for me honestly the iconic version of Batman. Like the version of oh, Batman yeah. that manages to be everything you want Batman to be. Mm. It can be serious. It can be ridiculous. It can have pathos. It can be a pure action show. It can be kind of anything you want. There was a ton of really brilliant episodes, and even the bad episodes are kind of fun. Um, and then snuggled right in the middle of that, they made a feature-length feature film, released in theaters on Christmas, dumped, like, no fanfare. Siskel and Ebert forgot to review it. Like, they had to get to it, like, a week or two later. Like, oh, right, there was a new Batman. And they liked it a lot. Uh, but uh, it ended up being, I think, one of the best versions of Batman on camera. Uh, and it is a story that is half told in flashback as we see Bruce Wayne uh, returning from his international travels where he was training to become the vigilante he wanted to be, trying to become the vigilante he wanted to be. And then, just before he finally made the decision and committed full with, with his whole heart hmm. to being Batman and dedicating his life to nothing but vengeance, he falls in love. There's a wonderful, maybe the best Bruce Wayne scene I've ever seen in anything is the bit where he goes to the grave of his parents and begs them to let him go out of his promise to avenge their deaths so that he can have a life. Beautiful, like really hauntingly good drama. And then it intercuts with years later, he's Batman. And there is a new serial killer in town called the Phantasm who is killing various mobsters. And Batman right. is trying to solve this mystery. Now, the, another masked vigilante, very yeah. much like Batman. Now, the, the solution to the mystery is a little obvious. There's only so many characters it could be. Uh, Wait, and so, do they, you think it might be that new character they just introduced, or or maybe it's the other one, and then no one else? There's like no one else could possibly <laughs> be. Um, so it, that part isn't super duper amazing, but what is amazing is it's incredibly stylish, gorgeously animated. I love the score for this. Shirley Jackson reorchestrated uh, Danny Elfman's Batman score into something more operatic, if you can imagine it. The, the composer was named Shirley Jackson. No, I'm sorry, Shirley Walker. Shirley sorry. Walker. Okay. Shirley, I apologize, Shirley Walker. I was about to say that's, <laughs> like the, the late great cool. Shirley Walker. And, and no, no. name is Shirley. Jackson Let me author. double check because now I'm, now I'm, uh, but I'm 90% sure it's Shirley Walker. Um, yeah, Shirley Walker. Shirley Walker composer. Right. Yeah, brilliant composer in, in their own right. Doesn't right. get enough credit. Um, their, their opening theme for Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which is basically uh, uh, what if Danny Elfman's Batman theme had like lyrics from Deniba Lungan. <laughs> like it's actually it's actually the words are actually meaningless but it feels like it comes from like a german opera like it's super amazing um it's got heft it's got drama it's got real characters uh stories quite fun it manages to be very very serious while also incorporating you know weird bits with the joker uh later on that adds a bit more frivolity to it um it's one of the best batman movies it holds up super duper great and um yeah, it's also one of the best uh, installments of that version of Batman, right. which is saying something because that for me is the ideal version of Batman. I've never seen a better version. All right. Um, we, we each have our own idealized version of Batman then. Yeah, and I love the 1960s version. I think it's really, yeah. really wonderful, but uh, my favorite's the Paul Dini one. I, uh, I I can't really comment to the Paul Dini film. Um, I've seen it. Yeah. That's all I can say about it. Yeah, okay. Didn't uh, really I, make an I, impression I, on you? Yeah, I don't... I, I... Did you watch the show? 
Uh, I, I've seen maybe like three or four episodes. Of that's the all show you saw of it? Yeah. Oh man, um, that's a, that's something we've been wanting to do. Like, if our Patreon mm-hmm. hits a certain level, we're gonna like do every mm-hmm. single episode of Batman. Well, maybe that could list more than three or four. I, yeah. I, I did watch it from time to time. Yeah, I remember they, when it it premiered in prime time when it was yeah. it, it was a big deal. So I saw the the first episode at, in the evening, which mm-hmm. was kind of uh, kind of a big shock. Yeah, there's a couple of but clunkers not, in there, yeah. but mostly it's a very reliable, very good show. I saw the one with um, the. Uh, dejected like baby jane like actress oh god um, that's a weird one to start with okay. I, I saw one, the one with the uh ventriloquist dummy oh uh um, uh scarface the scarface yeah there's a couple of scarface episodes uh, I, I saw one i saw one with the um the clock king who could stop time oh the uh, later clock king like not like early on where he was just a guy who knew train schedules Oh, no. The, the first like, appearance of the he, Clock he had, he had King... Like a, a, he had like a widget that let him slow time. No, the first appearance of the Clock King was just... He's a guy who understood how Gotham worked, like, down mm-hmm. to the second. And so he could plot any crime, oh, yeah. in, like, really perfectly. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bit where, like, uh, Batman's chasing him on a rooftop. Mm-hmm. And Batman's like, I've got you now. And he's like, yes, but you forgot one thing, Batman. Oh. The 3.15 is always two minutes early. <laughs> and he jumps off the building <laughs> and he lands on, on top of an elevated train. That's really fun. I like that bit. And uh, I, I saw an episode where uh, it was just the villains telling stories of how they almost got Batman. Almost got him. Is, a cl- is maybe the best episode of that show. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's yeah. a really great one. I've seen a couple. I was yeah. I was never grandly moved to go back and visit yeah. it a lot. But I, I did like what I saw. Uh, yeah. And I, and I did see the movie eventually. Um, and I, I ended up seeing a, another animated Batman film where the joke... I think it, mu- it must have been Batman Beyond because the Joker was completely different now. Like, it was this, like gigantic um, the, monster thug guy with like big fists and like long hair. Oh no, no. Um, you saw like the Batman. Oh, I saw. Okay. There was like, there was like this anime influenced version of the Batman because the mm. return of the Joker takes place in like, like 40 years in the future. Gotham's mm. a bit more blade runnery. And the idea is that the Joker mysteriously vanished back in Batman's day, but now he's back and he hasn't yeah. aged and no one knows why. Hmm. Um, it's actually pretty good. It's not think, amazing, uh, but it's really good. I, I think by the time the Batman cartoon was uh, was airing, I was already watching like MTV. So yeah, you're, you're a little, little slightly little, missed your demographic. Slightly a little, yeah. a little, just like a hair too old to like really, yeah. really delve into that show. But, and it's one of those shows that like I loved as a kid, but I saw it again as an adult, and okay. it holds up. Right. And so, so, and so does the film. I think so. Hmm. In any case, uh, what do I want to talk about next? I don't know, Whitney. Hmm. Uh, but you've got, looks like five more. Let's see, one, two, th- three, five, four left on my list really? here. So, um, I got, uh, you did Adam's Family, uh-huh. you did uh, Holy Grail, Thunderbirds, South Park, Batman the Movie. That's only five. Uh, South Park. Did I skip one? Batman, Adam's Family. Um, I guess I, I got, well, we'll keep, keep going until you tell right. me to stop. Um. Another uh, film that was made right at the end of a TV show from the 1960s Mm -hmm. uh, and finally went into, uh, I would say it's an explanation as to what the TV show was really about, but it explains nothing and actually asks way more questions than you would ever hope. Uh, It's Head. Oh, Head. Uh, Oh, actually, not where I thought you were going there for a second. All right. Oh uh, yeah, The Monkees uh, was a hit TV show back in the 1960s. Uh, it was about a band, very much like the Beatles in a lot of ways. Suspiciously similar who in live, some regards. Who live a life a lot like the movie A Hard Day's Night and a lot like the movie Help in a lot of ways. Huh. Uh, 
And they uh, came, the monkeys came under a lot of criticism because they were prefabricated. They held auditions to make this hit band. Yeah. They didn't just come <laughs> together know. in a garage, four guys who knew each other. They, yeah. they, 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 because, they didn't have a dream and work yeah. their way up from like, no, they were, they were actors who auditioned and hmm. became the monkeys. Yeah. So what? I don't think they, <laughs> I, don't, hey, listen, I don't. I don't care how you get the it, it, how you get the gig doesn't matter as much as what you do with it. Yeah, yeah. You and, know, like, well, some cases it does, but generally mm-hmm. speaking, I don't care if you're great. I I don't care if so you auditioned. They, they got these four guys. There was uh, the the young charmer that was Davy Jones. There was the funny guy that was Mickey Dolenz. There was the, uh, all the uh, funny guy. Uh, pardon? They were all the funny. Guy. They were they were all the funny guy. Uh, it was if, an entire band of Ringos. Come on. If there was a Groucho, all if Ringos. there was a Groucho of the group, it was Mickey Dolenz. Okay, uh, fine. He was the Groucho-iest Ringo and, they had. <laughs> they were, it's true. They were all... Well, but you could also say they were all the, the Pauls. Uh, but... No, they were Ringo. <laughs> I love them, but they were Ringo. Yeah. Come on. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Davy Jones, Mickey Dolenz, Peter Tork, and Mike Nesmith. Uh, three of whom have passed away now. Mike Nesmith mm-hmm. passed away just recently. Uh, but, yeah, they, they lived in a house, uh, an apartment together, and they had wacky adventures where mm-hmm. they were trying to get dates with girls, book gigs, and just go through various uh, funny adventures. Mm. Some of them were reality bending. Here's one where they're just enacting a fairy tale, and Mm. it's these funny guys, and they did a lot of really broad slapstick. uh, Look, it was the 60s. You were basically allowed to do anything. Uh, Oh, oh, look, there's Stan Freeberg, because of course. (laughs) Uh, And... uh, as their careers uh, wore on, as the show went on, uh, more and more vocal critics started started coming to the fore that they were these sort of prefabricated fake band and that they weren't really playing their own instruments and they weren't really writing their own songs, which is true of a lot of bands. Actually, yeah. it was true of the Monkees, too. Uh, but you know what? They learned. A lot of them could play anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Davy Jones was a good singer. There's a reason he was always seen playing the tambourine in the band shots. Uh, but... Yeah, they they could sing, they could play their own instruments, they started writing their own songs, but they still weren't getting credit for for the talent that they actually had. Mm. And so uh, they did a TV special called 33 and a Third Revolutions Per Monkey, where uh, they did this sort of, uh, this kind of psychedelic thing where they actually started depicting themselves in this surrealistic sort of way as cogs in this machine and there's like big brother voices ordering them around and they're being like literally sapped of their personality. Uh, then they got their hands on a lot of drugs and made head. Uh, and Bob Rafelson and Jack Nicholson. Yes. yes Jack Nicholson yes. Uh, uh, took a bunch of drugs, went out to a cabin out in, in Joshua Tree and came up with the script for Head, which was this weird phantasmagoric odyssey as what it was like to be a monkey. And the price of you know, of fame and all of this uh, criticism. It was essentially re- responding to internet trolls before that was a thing. Yeah. Uh, the opening scene of of Head is there's a, an opening to a bridge and the monkeys are running away from a bunch of fans, uh, Hard Day's Night style. I get it. And they throw themselves off a bridge and they die. <laughs> That's the opening scene of Head. <clears throat> Fun fact, I've actually you know, never seen Head. Oh, yeah. I, I've heard nothing they, but amazing actually, things. Actually, I've never had the opportunity. They fall into water and the camera goes below the water and they're in a swimming pool and they play out the, their opening song, which is called The Porpoise Song. And uh, Yeah. Great song. I heard the song. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the soundtrack's really great. There's, uh, yeah. you know, this is actually the monkeys doing a lot more interesting musical things as well. Yeah. When when they uh, did the soundtrack to Head, and there's yeah a lot of, and now they're French legionnaires, and they care are having trouble getting coke out of this disembodied coke machine out in the right. middle of a desert. Or here's uh, Davy Jones having this really awesome dance battle with Tony Basil playing herself, who did oh, the yeah. choreography. She's awesome. in the movie as well. 
yeah, here's here's a bit where um, they're just sort of in a diner. Here's a bit where they open a mirror and there's a psychedelic image behind. It's really sort of head trippy and you know drugged out. Um, but I think it's a really really fascinating peek into the subconscious of what the monkeys were all about. I think the monkeys, in their own way, are way more interesting than a band like the Beatles. The Beatles wrote great songs, yes, mm-hmm. but their arc has become very a very typical story of the way a band operates. Mm-hmm. They broke through, the, out through their rise they, yeah. and through their fall and yeah. sort of their their the career beats. They've become so well known that it's almost become a cliche. I would I would argue that the Beatles helped invent that cliche. Uh, well, indeed, but so, like you know, you can't you can't you only you can only ding them so hard for yeah. following the cliche when you invented the cliche. I feel like the Beatles, because they were so successful, never had that moment where they really had to struggle with success, mm. struggle to make it. They had their real you know, moments early in their career where they were struggling to make it. Yeah. But I got the feeling that there was never a moment in the Beatles career where some record producer said, you can't do that. Uh, I saw a documentary film about R.E.M. Uh, my wife is one of the world's biggest R.E.M. fans. Mm-hmm. And R.E.M. is about how they were a band. A bunch of guys got together in Athens, Georgia. They played in a barn. Everybody liked them. They started getting bigger gigs. Everybody liked them. They kept on putting out records. They were all hits. Everybody liked them. They never had a moment where they said, oh, shit. Yeah. there's no that... what, what can we do artistically well, to really challenge it's, it's like It's like that moment in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody mm-hmm. where they write Bohemian Rhapsody. And then that agent is like, hey, you can't put this on the radio. This song is way too long. And they have to, like, overcome that adversity and stand up for their song. And that didn't happen. No, they invented that. Yeah, that's because 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 nothing uh... interesting happened at that point in their career. So they had to invent some shit. Because if if everything is going fine and you make a bunch of hit songs and everyone likes them, Mm. and then that's that... It's not good drama, is it? Now, the monkeys wrestled with various levels of success. They were successful in one way. They were successful in another way. They became uh, solo artists. Uh, They got back together. They split up again. Uh, They went on tour, the remaining two of them, just recently. Uh, My wife got to see them in concert, uh, Mike Nesmith and Mickey Mickey Dolenz, uh, just two weeks before Mike Nesmith's death. Brutal. So, yeah, that was a, a little tough. We didn't get to talk about Mike Nesmith's con- contributions to cinema because in addition to making Head, uh, he also uh, wrote the screenplay for a movie called Time Rider. <laughs> that was a Mike Nesmith joint. <laughs> uh... <laughs> and he also uh, produced and ensured that the movie Repo Man got made. Well, then kudos uh, for him. So, and that's that's a, an amazing film as well. Yeah. Hey, Ringo helped get Life of Brian made. No, yeah. George Harrison did. George Sorry. Harrison was my bad. Sorry, Brian. George Harrison did. So there you go. Yeah. Well, and 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 the Beatles also have some weird involvements in film. Like mm-hmm. uh, John Lennon's one of the reasons we have Alejandro Jodorowsky, for instance. Yeah, like he um, he helped popularize his work. Yeah, yeah. Like, like he was a, a big booster of uh, El Topo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I think looking at Head and sort sort of pondering the career of the Monkeys is a really interesting thing to ponder because I think the the Monkeys are fascinating. Mm-hmm. I I listen. Yeah. I agree the monkeys are fascinating. I just haven't seen Head. What I do know is the reason why the movie is called Head mm. was because uh, Jack Nicholson and Bob Rifleson thought it'd be really, really funny if the movie was a hit and they made a sequel to be able to advertise it as from the people who gave you Head. Isn't that cute? Isn't that just the funniest fucking thing? Anyway, my next movie is a Star Trek movie. Hey, you know what? I have a Star Trek movie too. And here's the thing. I, I, there's, there's a couple of... I only ended up going with so many franchise movies, uh, but I was like, you know, there's like at least four really great Star Trek movies. 
Three, three bare minimum. There's, there's three or four good. There's, there's at least three like stone ended. classics. There's at least two others that I think are rock solid three and a half star films. There's a, a really wonderful line of dialogue in Futurama about the Star yeah. Trek movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's just uh, it's like well, uh, the uh, the professor, a very old man, he's napping, so mm-hmm. we only have time for like six movies. Yeah, <laughs> playing, he's gonna be napping all day, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and Fry turns around and says, "Hey, you know what?" Averages out to be pretty good. The first six Star Trek movies, yeah, they average out to be pretty the, good, which is which is about right. But like the 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 good Star Trek movies are legitimately great films. Mm. But and I and I really easily could have picked multiple films. I think a lot of them are excellent films for very different reasons. Uh, but if I can only pick one, and I decided that was fair, I decided that the Star Trek movie I would pick would be the film that worked the best as a movie. As an actual, you know, piece of giant entertainment, while also being fiercely intelligent, mm. while also being uh, salient and having something meaningful to say about the world as it stands, which I think is one of the mission statements of sci-fi in general mm. and Star Trek in particular. Um, and um, it's also a movie that I think is just fucking great, and that is Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered mm. Country. My pick for the best Star Trek movie and one of the best films ever based on a TV show. I I, I really love Star Trek Sex. Yeah. Um, Star, although uh, that's not the one on my list. I'm going to pick Star Trek The Motion Picture. Okay, see, that, uh, and there's a reason mm-hmm. why, and I, I used to not like that movie. Okay. And then after we did our Patreon podcast, uh, All Our Yesterdays, where we've been watching every single episode of Star Trek, and we got through the entire original series and animated series, and only then, after many years of not watching it, did I watch... Star Trek the motion picture did I get it I get why Star Trek the motion picture mm. works it kind of only works if it's the first big Star Trek you've ever had <laughs> because after years of watching a, a show with wonderful writing mostly really great cast but struggling to tell great stories on a TV budget to finally see this thing writ large, to mm. see what is basically an episode of the show, and it's very similar to like two or three different episodes of the show, but to see it on the grand cosmic mm. scale, and to and to really feel that elevated grandiosity, yeah, and to, that's, and to, that's Star Trek emotion, and to truly believe in the world, like you don't have to like, oh, it's the same whole corridor, but from a different angle, mm. or oh, there's the model and there's the no, not a very good built bigger yeah. sets. Like, they redesigned the ship. The the, the yeah. ship that the the shot that everyone makes fun of in Star Trek motion picture is this shot where it's, Kirk it's is a in whole, a, It's like an eight minute scene. Yeah, and, it's gigantic, but like it's it's just Kirk in a shuttle flying around the Enterprise, and we're just seeing it in all of its majesty. And nowadays, you might have that, but the shot would last thirty seconds. We get it. We luxuriate in that ship. And that's something that is comical. If you're coming at it from the outside, you've seen all the other Star Trek movies, mm-hmm. and you can take for granted that the ship looks real and good. If you spent like 10, 15 years only seeing the, the Enterprise as a rinky-dink model that is barely convincing on a TV set, to see this like, oh my god. They built it, they, and and it, it they looks made, real. They made it look really big, and the sense of scale yeah. is enormous. We see like little oh littler God. things in front of it, sort of uh, like, piecing it together. It, it, it's like it's like you know, like one of the cool things about like I think the reason why Jurassic World was really successful is that 
it took the promise of Jurassic Park and just took it the next step, which is what would this park have been like if it was open? Yeah. And we can see the attractions. We it's actually like understands that a big budget movie making is kind of an amusement park ride. This is an attraction mm. to just see the fucking enterprise <laughs> in its full we built Put it one to one scale. Like holy shit. And then on top of it all, there's this giant like unbelievably unfathomably large technological terror that is like working its way through the universe and it's just you can't even begin to imagine how gigantic it is just when you think to yourself oh my god i've just seen the most gigantic thing ever put on camera you realize that we've just crossed the outer shell oh my god here's a gigantic ship that's a craft cloud whatever it is uh, uh, like the size of the solar system it's gigantic and yeah uh, a lot of the movie is them entering this cloud and exploring the inner chambers of whatever this thing is. Mm-hmm. And it feels ineffable and mysterious. Like the human mind can't even contain it. Yeah. And I think, and I think Robert Wise who directed that, uh, he had a great sense of that. And he, mm. he decided that he was going to make Star Trek a bit more like 2001, a bit more mm. idea based, a bit more based off of the wonder of a science fiction future. Um, and make it less about the plot because the plot's actually pretty simple and straightforward. There's an unthinkable, unknowable entity we have to make contact with it and find some way to connect to it. That's basically it. Uh, it's very Star Trek. Mm. It's a gigantic. It's the biggest episode of Star Trek you've ever seen. And, and that's that's why I yeah. prefer this one. Sure, uh, and I think now, and I think it works is... on that level. Um, if you want to say that that's the criteria mm. for the best Star Trek movie, that's the one. Yeah. Now. Um... That's just not to cast any dispersions on Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Yeah. Which uh, Star Trek has always played very uh, openly with political allegory. And Star Trek VI came out right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, just a few years previous. And it is commenting on immediate Earth sociopolitical things going mm-hmm. on about the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, the... Um, there's a in the the plot of the movie. There's a disaster on one of the Klingon moons. It's practice. It blows up in a mining accident. The moon blows up in a, a mining yeah. accident. And, and basically, the Klingon economy yeah. is destroyed. It, it's it bottoms out, and this means that yeah. the Cold War that has been fought between the the classical Star Trek baddies, the Klingons, they, and the Federation, is now now it has to be negotiated. It has to yeah, end. It's impossible. The Klingons yeah. can't keep going as it is. And and yet there are still players within this system who are profiting from the conflict continuing. And not just profiting mm-hmm. from it. There are people whose ideologies refuse to let they refuse to let their ideologies go. Yeah. They've so been at war with the Klingons for so long, and they've been at war with the humans for so long that the idea of just suddenly saying "let bygones be bygones" is it's anathema like a wound, to them. A wound of the pride. Yeah, yeah. They, they cannot imagine a life without war, especially yeah. specifically war with these people. And, and so there and was an rather attempt, cleverly, yeah. Kirk is one of those people. Yeah, Kirk can't handle it, and because uh, you know, Spock... the Klingon killed his son in Star Trek Three. Yeah, and uh, and Spock is the one who's actually negotiating a lot of this. And yeah. uh, Spock refers Kirk to uh, an old uh, Vulcan proverb: "Only Nixon can go to China." There's, so there's actually <laughs> humor. Fun. There's humor in this. Oh, it's as very well. funny. Yeah. Um, so, but basically, what happens is there's supposed to be a big. Uh, uh, they, they have dinner together. It's supposed to be a big diplomatic mm-hmm. uh, talk. It goes really badly. And uh, sure enough, after it goes really, really badly, the Klingon ambassador is assassinated. Mm. And Kirk and Bones are accused of committing the murder 
they are immediately thrown in jail. Mm. They are taken. It's a kangaroo court. To, There's to, no we're, way they're repente the mining prison. Yeah. It's a kangaroo court. They're basically sent to the Klingon version of Siberia. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is being told to like basically come home. You're done. Oh. And they pretend that the ship has been like decommissioned and sabotaged yeah. so that they can perform an immediate and off the books investigation into how who actually killed them. This is. You see a lot of Star Trek movies kind of struggle to figure out what is Star Trek as a film. Hmm. Star Trek The Motion Picture says, okay, it's the biggest high concept episode of the show writ large. Uh, Wrath of Khan is, oh, it's about naval battles in space. Hmm. Great movie. Not my favorite Star Trek movie, but it's really great. Uh, Star Trek Four was about social issues and time travel, and it's about the whimsy of it. Uh, the idea is that this this world is so different from our own that when you combine them, they clash. Um uh, Star Trek Six is a Tom Clancy novel. Yeah, yeah. and Tom Clancy was so, huge at the time. The sociopolitical thriller. Yeah, basically, it's like we're going to say like, okay, so the the idea is that this is a Cold War, basically a spy movie, and everything is relying on this. There is a, there is a, mm. a, a huge diplomatic crisis. If it goes badly, everyone goes to war, and a lot of people die, and it all resp- res- falls down to a handful of people who are really good at their jobs and know how to keep their heads together. Can they, with a ticking clock and the biggest stakes in the universe, be smart? <laughs> and they are. And they and on top of it all, they find a way to be funny. They find a way uh, to have some action. It ends in a really good space battle. Like it's it's not like oh. the centerpiece of it, but it, it's a satisfying conclusion. Uh, Christopher Plummer is a great villain. Um, the the cast is gangbusters. I've always said, and for me, no matter what you do with Star Trek. To have a good Star Trek movie, every single member of the ensemble cast needs to have something to do. Yeah. Needs to have something useful to contribute to the film. And on that note, there's only like three great Star Trek movies as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> almost every almost every Star Trek movie underserves somebody, but Six gives everyone something to do. Yeah. Um, it is incredibly topical. It has something to say about where we are at the moment. It does so in a spectacularly entertaining way. It, it, it never feels dumb. It never feels like we're just doing something for the fun of it mm. while still being exceptionally fun. And it's intelligent without trying to like hammer into your head just how brilliant it is. You know, mm. it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's Star Trek the motion picture is about such heady stuff. We're trying to blow your mind, man. Yeah. And this is like, no, we just, we, we read the newspaper and we thought we would tell a story that's sort of an allegory of what's going on right now in a thoughtful and intelligent way. We're not trying to, like, if you're high, like, really make you lose your shit. Hmm. We're just trying to tell a really, really smart story, and we did. Um, I think it's great. I think it's one of the great blockbuster entertainments in sci-fi, just because it's it's an intelligent and well-told story. Yeah. I love it to pieces. Okay. okay, so we've each got three left. Whitney, yes. take it away. What's your uh, one? This one is uh, not, it's not based on a show. Oh, it's based okay. on a segment from a show. Oh, that counts. That's fine. Uh, yeah. Um, it's one of the many Lauren Michaels produced mm-hmm. uh, Saturday Night Live movies. Stewart saves his family. Uh, no, Wayne's World. Uh, saves I'm, his family. I'm very fond of Wayne's okay. World. Uh, the, the, <laughs> uh, Penelope Spheris, the director of Wayne's World, uh, previously did a series of documentaries. Uh, actually, not all before Wayne's World, but did uh, the, the Decline of Western Civilization, mm-hmm. uh, parts one and two, I think, before Wayne's World came out in 1992. And uh, she knows 
the music scene. Yeah. She knows pop music. She knows. And not the just the music and the musicians, the fans. The, the fans, yeah. the, 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 also the musicians and just sort of the, the, the texture of, uh, metals ethos. And, uh, if you've seen decline of Western civilization, part two, the metal years, which is about all the, the metal musicians, uh, she comes to the conclusion that a lot of people get into heavy metal simply for the hedonism at all. They just want yeah. to be rich and famous and have a lot of sex. Yeah. And, that's and who doesn't? That's, and that's evident in the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, K- Kiss comes out and says, "Yeah, we want to have sex." It's like, oh well, sure yeah. you do. Pretty much the entire uh, hair metal mm. like yeah trend in metal was pretty much unapology unapologetically saying we have almost nothing to talk about. Yeah, there's <laughs> we just want to celebrate no being here. cool is, and sexy and partying. Girls, and, girls, girls. Yeah, that kind pretty, of thing. Literally, uh, that was the song. Uh, and in Decline of Western Civilization, metal is seen as this sort of kind of an empty world. But I think with Wayne's world, uh, Penelope Spheris was wise enough to depict that the like metal fans, like metalheads, are they're not Satan worshippers. Nope, they're not wasteoids, uh, and they're not all like idiot hedonists. They're just they're, guys. They're, they're just nice guys. Yeah, they're just nice nice guys who hang around and eat donuts and go to metal shows. And yeah. They, okay, they have Joe jobs and still with, live with their parents, but they're working on it. Yeah. And they're broadcasting out of their basement back when that was kind of a novel thing to do and well, get into public access TV. It's so weird for me when you look back at the history of Saturday Night Live, how many of the early Saturday Night Live sketches mm. were based on the idea of public access yeah, television. Yeah, yeah. To this day, they're still doing that. Which is weird because if you think about like public access television, and again, if you're too young to know what this was, before we had like the internet and most people had cable, there were these like ultra high frequency stations that you could log into on your televisions. And they would be uh, stuff that was very local. Like you could only get it if you live nearby. And a lot of shows, there'd be people who just can't, who just basically asked for a show from a local station. Yeah, you go down to the station, yeah. they have a studio space, you bring your own chairs. Yeah. Uh, sometimes if you had more resources, you could film something at home and give them a VHS tape, but mostly you're, you're broadcasting live. Yeah. And this was basically, you could make a show about anything. You mm. could make a show that was like a local call-in show. You could make a show that was about cooking. There were a lot of uh, a lot of sports shows like yep. sports fans would call in just to, to kibitz about sports. Yeah. And there were a lot of uh, music shows like music fans would get together. And and it's weird because there was this brief period at the turn of the century when because of the preponderance of cable uh those public access shows became incredibly esoteric. It's yeah, something that was weird. That, it's something weird that Saturday Night Live is even doing it. And then a couple of years later, once YouTube became popular, uh, those shows came roaring back, and now they're like a dominant force in media. Now it's yeah, it, it's they're called YouTube shows. Almost now, any but YouTube that's, sh- that's what it is. Almost any YouTube show I watch or that I'm a part of <laughs> is functionally the same as public yeah, the, access the, was in like the 1980s. The Schmodown is is a child of public access. Uh, yeah, on yeah, some the, level, uh, yeah, it's uh, my, uh, maybe a more ambitious one than some. But yeah, my, yeah, my my family and I are fond of a show called Good Mythical Morning. It's uh, hosted by these two guys named Rhett and Link uh, mm-hmm. from I think they're from South, North or South Carolina, one of yeah. the Carolinas. And uh, a lot of their show is just eating challenges. It's the yeah. these two guys sitting at a desk talking about you know what which fast food restaurant makes the best onion rings, and mm-hmm. they taste each one. There's a show uh, uh, me, and, me and my partner Michelle yeah. watch a lot. Uh, it, it doesn't update as often as it used to, unfortunately, but it still updates. Uh, it's called Ask a Mortician. Oh, there you go. And it's literally just interesting, weird mm. histories about the mortuary industry and how death works and the science of yeah. death and cremation. And it sounds really morbid. It's actually really, really fun oh, and enlightening and makes me feel better about death. Yeah. And as I said before, I'm death phobic. So mm. that's really, really cool. And so in a basically 
Wayne's World is has actually aged spectacularly well in a lot of uh. regards. Because what Wayne and Garth do for a living is not something a lot of people do for a living. Um, but in any case, the movie that they made out of this sketch of like two just metalheads in their basement talking about stuff that they like mm-hmm. um, is actually a really sweet kind of... It's not really a coming-of-age story. It almost presaged well, that, that weird uh, uh, Judd Apatow, Apatow thing. People yeah, coming about... of age a little too late, like in their 20s. Yeah. Um, you know? Uh, Wayne, who's played by Mike Myers, and his best friend Garth, who's played by Dana Carvey... Uh, they're playing younger than they are. Yeah. Um, these guys are already in their 30s, and they're playing guys that are, like, maybe 22. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I never questioned it. Yeah, it, 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 it was, was just like, it was just I, part I, of I get fabric. it. I understand what we're doing. It's fine. And, and, you know, they have very modest ambitions. Uh, Wayne wants to make a living with the public access show. Yeah. Wouldn't that be keen? Does he want to be rich? And, just uh, wants to be able to do it full time. And uh, and he wants to uh, have, have a, a, a pretty girlfriend, uh, which yeah. he... Achieves over the course of the movie. Yeah, he meets uh, he, meets he meets and romances uh, the great Tia Carrera. Tia Carrera, uh, who was had got her own TV show out of it. Um, mm, she couple, didn't, actually. She didn't become a, a like a really big movie star, but she became a TV star, uh, uh, a Relic be- Hunter, and one other, I think. Yeah, but very uh, respectable though. Like, yeah, very, very, she, people know who she was. Mm. Um, I haven't seen and, her in yeah, a while. Yeah, but, she you know. she uh, she was the the. Uh, front woman for a band called Crucial Taunt. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So it's all about how, uh, how Rob Lowe is trying to screw Wayne and Garth out of their creative property and potentially also steal his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And Wayne is tempted to sell out, regrets it almost immediately, and then tries to find a way to try to reclaim his intellectual property. There, there's a wonderfully bizarre scene, uh, that plays like gangbusters today where, uh, Rob Lowe is saying, well, now you have to do sponsors. You have yeah. to sell out to make money. And they, uh, in the sequence, they say, we will never bow to any sponsor. But while they're doing it, they're holding up products in front of the camera and smiling, yeah. holding like a All pizza of a sudden, hut. Garth is wearing clothes where every article of clothing has the Pepsi it's, logo it's, emblazoned it's, it's on. It's Reebok. But oh, it's yeah. Reebok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that part holds there's, up real so there, well, there's great. a little bit of like surrealism of absurdism to, yeah. to Wayne's world uh, so it, it's light and it's fun yeah. it's very silly and it, it's just an incredibly affable film I rewatched it for the first time in a long time just a couple of weeks ago just mm. just for fun yeah and you know any comedy a couple of jokes don't age well but mostly it holds up great like it's mm. a genuinely funny movie and the sequel is pretty darn good too yeah, yeah. Um, this would make my list the sequel didn't make my list but if you're gonna watch Wayne's World 1 you might as well watch Wayne's World 2 because it's <laughs> both really funny what I appreciate about Wayne's World 2 is that it doesn't do that sequel thing where they just repeat the same story no it's a different story it's about yeah. Wayne is trying to put on a music festival yeah, Wayne Stock he calls yeah. it yeah and, and uh, uh, it's about signing all these bands he doesn't know if they're gonna show up or not yeah. and he has to also uh, meet his girlfriend's parents yes and, uh, and actually James like, Hong. Pre- present as an adult for the first time yeah and that's a different story for him yeah the uh uh I talk a lot about uh, the perfect jokes. Mm. There's only a handful of perfect jokes in cinema. Uh, I think we just talked about uh, Batman the movie, how the some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. That is a perfect joke. Yeah. Talked about uh, History of the World Part 1. That is a perfect joke. Then with the, with the Ten Commandments. There's a perfect joke in Wayne's World too. Oh, okay. And it's the joke oh, where... Oh, the... Uh, the, the... The gas station attendant? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's a brilliant gag. It's where uh, Wayne finds out that Cassandra is getting married today and he has to, like, find the church. And uh, his car breaks down and he runs into a gas station and says, Hey, I need to find the first Presbyterian church on Boylston Street or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the actor is like, Oh, uh, yeah, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Boylston Street. 
I once knew a girl on Boylston Street, but that was a long time ago. And Mike Myers turns to the camera and says, uh, excuse me. This is kind of a crap role, and we understand that. I know it's a small part, but surely we can do better than this? And so they remove this actor. It's like like, like character actor you've seen before. And, and like, yeah, crew people come in with, like, the mics on and the black t-shirts, and they pull him off camera. (laughs) And they bring in Charlton Charlton Heston, (laughs) who, to his credit, I do not care for a lot of Charlton Heston's politics. As a a person, he's kind of a a miserable guy. He'd be a really good actor when he tried. Mm. And he fucking nails the scene. He he does not half-ass that scene. He teaches that scene the way... Boylston Street. When he plays the the, the king of, like, the players in Hamlet, he is just as committed (laughs) as he is in the Wayne's World 2 bit. Um, That is a brilliant joke. That is one of the great jokes I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. Uh, So both of those Wayne's World films are really, really great. There's a lot of fun pop culture references, yeah. uh, and it, its affection for heavy metal uh, was kind of novel at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking back to some, uh, if you go back to like the mid to late 80s, there mm-hmm. were a couple heavy metal horror movies about the evils of heavy metal. Oh, uh, uh, Black Roses. Black Roses, Trick or Treat, yeah. Slaughterhouse The original Rock. Trick or Treat. Yeah, the, yeah. the one with Gene Simmons. It was directed um, by uh, Charles Martin Smith. That's right. Uh, yeah. Who, did, uh, who starred in Never Cry Wolf and directed yeah. Air Bud. Um, yeah. Talented person. I'm not. I'm Very not going to disparage Air Bud. Nice. Air Bud is actually a weirdly effective movie. Yeah, it, it, fun- um, it functions. Yeah, uh, like like it's moody and it's well photographed. Yeah, for, it's actually for, it's, for a movie about a dog that plays yeah. basketball. Like they're actually committing. It's to a it. real film. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah. But uh, a, a lot of heavy metal. Whenever they showed a serial killer in a movie, they're always listening to metal. There's some you know these people who are attracting yeah. death. They're always about. Yeah, metal. I listened. I listened to my heavy metal record backwards, and now a gate to hell opened in my yeah, backyard. It, uh, Wayne's World is the opposite of that. Yeah. The world of heavy metal is just populated by guys who just like music and mm-hmm. are kind kind of eccentric and understand a lot of a lot about music trivia and they listen to Queen. Yeah, and of course that famous scene where uh, they're listening to Bohemian Rhapsody revived Queen in a lot of ways. Queen yeah. was seen as a little bit more of a cult act before Wayne's World. Well, I mean, it was a hit band, but yeah, it was but also... They, but it also had fallen out of favor. Yeah, it had been a long time since they'd had a hit song. Yeah, it had been a long time since they'd had a hit song. And you know how fast music moves in generations. With something that's five years old, unless that band has still produced a couple of hits, is old now. Mm. Queen was old. I remember. I was there. I was young. I was the, I was the target demographic for MTV. Queen was an old band. I'd heard some of their stuff and liked it. Bohemian Rhapsody became the most important song in the world again. In 1992. It, like, and it reached the top of the charts the, uh, again. The, it was the classic huge. Queen records made their way back into rotation, and they still are. Yep. Uh, and now they they became so famous that they made a biopic about Freddie Mercury. And, and, became, and, and thanks in part to the success of Wayne World, uh, Mike Myers has a role in that movie. As, <laughs> as the... the the guy, guy who, who argues, just says you can't you can't release Bohemian Rhapsody as a single. He's that yeah. guy. Unrecognizable. They put great makeup on him. Yeah, it's weird. Um, but anyway, anyway, uh, you gave me the perfect setup. Okay. Uh, because you gave me Charles uh, Charles Martin Smith, hmm. uh, who co-stars in one of the best movies ever made based on a TV show. Well, let's see, he's in Starman. No, he is in Starman, but that's not what I'm thinking Oh, of. I know. You're thinking of uh, Brian De Palma movie. I'm thinking of Brian De Palma's The Untouchables. I, I, I'm surprised it's not your number one, frankly, because I know you were my, very fond of My top movie. three are my number one. I want to make this clear. I could not pick between what they were. And I feel bad not making this my number one, but my other two are also just as fucking good. <laughs> uh, but The Untouchables is grand cinema. Mm. It is huge cinema. It's shitty history, 
<laughs> but it is great cinema. The Untouchables was an old television series starring Robert Stack, right? As Elliot Ness? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think it was yeah. Robert Stack. Yeah, it was, it was, it was before my time. I didn't, I've hardly seen a frame of it. Uh, but um, it was a show about, based on the true story, of how Elliot Ness, uh, a real-life G-man, hmm. uh, was brought into Chicago... Uh, to fight bootleggers back during Prohibition, during that period in American history where they illegalized alcohol throughout the country, thus not getting rid of alcohol, but making a whole lot of... Turns out alcohol is very easy to make. Uh, making bootleggers spectacularly wealthy and giving a massive boost uh, to uh, organized crime. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the gangster cliches that we have now emerged from that period of prohibition. It's right after World War One, and a whole bunch of young people just came back from the war to find out, oh, there are no jobs, and the only thing I know how to do is use a machine gun. Uh, hmm. I guess what I'll, should I do for a I living? I guess I'll break the law for yeah, a living. Yeah, I'll, I'll be... And there were a lot of bank robbers, and there were a lot of people who went into organized crime. One of whom was Al Capone. He became one of the most notorious criminals in world history, I think, at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, they made a TV show about Elliot Ness going after Al Capone all the time. And a good idea for a show, not factually accurate, a lot of liberties taken, but good idea for a show. Brian De Palma is given the opportunity to adapt that to a pretty blockbuster scale for the 1980s. Oh, um, this was like a production. Yeah, the huge it, cast. It, this was the late 80s when Oscar bait and blockbusters were intersecting a lot more often. Yeah, like uh, The Untouchables was an Oscar nominee. It, they were, it won. Sean Connery won an Academy Award for mm -hmm. this. His only Academy Award he ever won. One for The Untouchables. The cast includes Kevin Costner, who was already a star. He would become a bigger star, but he was already a star. Yeah, this is pre-Dances with Wolves. Yeah, but he was still a name. People knew who he was. Um, he's the he's the young star. He's the young lead. Uh, you got uh, Robert De Niro as Al Capone. Amazingly huge performance there. Uh, you've got a young um, um, Andy Garcia. Right. right. Uh, you got Charles uh, Martin Smith uh, as, the, as the dweeby as guy who's going to figure out that we can get him on tax evasion. The accountant who occasionally has to wield a gun and doesn't yeah. know how to do that. Uh, you've got so Patricia Clarkson who plays L.A. Ness as well, yes. right? Great early role for Patricia Clarkson, one of our great actors. Uh, and, uh, and Sean and Connery as Sean well. Sean Connery who... Throughout the first half of the movie, you think they're going to, like, Tyler Durden you, because <laughs> Elliot Ness is the only one who sees the Sean Connery character, and you think he's, like, for a second, you think he's a hallucination. No, he's a real guy. Other yeah, people he's actually guy. meet him. The idea but, uh, is that Sean Connery is a, is a cop who's, been, who's never had any chance at promotion because he's not corrupt. He just does his job. He's just a good beat cop. And when he sees that Elliot Ness actually has the means and the integrity to actually make a difference in crime in Chicago, uh -huh. he's like, okay, I know everything to do. I've just never had an opportunity to do it. So let's do this. And they take on Al Capone. And they do a great job taking on Al Capone. There are a ton of amazing sequences. There's this incredible uh, siege on a bridge where it's, it's start, which is in Canada, well, like it's, a bridge, it's it's like it's on the border. It's a bridge that's le like the bootleggers are bringing contraband. Yeah. So like they everything that needs they need to wait for people to get on this side of the bridge so that they can arrest them. But a bunch of shit goes down in the middle of the bridge and they have to ride into the bridge. I was on horseback, just like in the fucking searchers. It was like holy <laughs> fucking shit. There's a great sequence where uh, uh, Al Capone's accountant is gonna flee. And they know where he is, and they go to uh, the 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 bus the, the train station uh -huh. to go get him. And 
De Palma, it, it's a huge ripoff of a classic silent film sequence from the movie Battleship Attempt. Battleship Attempt, yeah. Uh, where with, with there's the, uh, the baby carriage going down the steps. Yeah, Probably basically, that image. in Battleship Attempt, there's a huge uh, uh, a riot and a I'd say battle, but it's more of a massacre that takes place uh, on a big giant set of steps, the Odessa steps. And uh, in order to sort of elevate the tension, add a touch of melodrama, and also give you a sense of how much is happening in such a short period of time, he intercuts it with a baby carriage rolling down the steps. Uh, we're having an entire shootout taking place while a baby while carriage is rolling down, down the steps. And all the yeah. cops are trying to kill all the bad guys and shoot them while catching the baby carriage. It's... It's, it's fucking almost, phenomenal. It's almost like a Chuck Jones set. It's more yeah. suspenseful than any Marvel action sequence I can think of. <laughs> any. Like, it's really fucking great cinema. Yeah. Super yeah. goddamn exciting. There's an incredible rooftop chase between Kevin Costner and the dearly departed Billy Drago, who was just one of our great, just seedy... Like, just as soon as he steps on camera, you know he's evil as fuck. Because well, he, he looks like Billy Drago. He looks like, no, he, he looks like Satan. Like, yeah. he just he had a wonderfully, uh, a wonderfully w- a wispy look to him. Like, he, like he, if he was made out of smoke, you'd believe it. <laughs> uh, just an incredible, incredible, great, great gig. Wonderful screenplay by David Mamet. Uh, mm. Again, aside from the basic bullet points of history, none of this shit is true. Uh, and David Mamet's kind of, like, not pretending. Almost proud of that. Yeah, he's not pretending. There's like a couple of stories about Al Capone that are pretty famous. Those are in the movie. Uh, there's a couple of bullet points people know about. You know, the trial he was ended up. Capone ended up going to jail not for all of the murders, mm-hmm. but for an obscene amount of tax evasion. That's weird. And they find a way to make that super cinematic, hmm. which is really extra impressive. Uh, the score, it's Ennio Morricone did the score, right? Yeah. One of his best, and that is saying something. <laughs> like, so, holy shit. This movie fucking jams. Like, every fucking thing about this movie is great, and it plays really, really well today. Um, if you've never seen The Untouchables, you should see The Untouchables. If you haven't seen yeah, it in a while, and you don't remember it being this good, I assure you it is. Rewatch The Untouchables. It's really thrilling. Yeah. Just, it, it's it's a corker. That no, no scene is without energy. And yeah. I, I mean, it's De Palma. He's usually used to playing really, really big. This is actually him a little bit better behaved than, yeah. he, than he can get. And it's still very, he's still very uh, uh, creative. Mm. He's still trying new things it's, and telling the story as interestingly yeah. as he possibly can. It doesn't have but that he weird is, pulpy quality. But, well, I think it, feels, he, it feels like a really uh, mannered Hollywood production. Well, I, th- I think what he's got is a well-structured screenplay. Even some of De Palma's best films, the films that I love, mm. have weird, formless screenplays. Look, Sisters... Weird fucking screenplay. <laughs> Body Double, Raising Cane, weird fucking screenplays. They are not operating within the rules of what we expect. Any director could have taken the script for The Untouchables, any decent director could have taken the script for The Untouchables and made a pretty good film. Yeah. Because the script is just rock solid. De Palma took that and just said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to make a pretty good film. I'm going to make the best fucking film I possibly fucking can. Every single part of this movie, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it a ten. Uh-huh. Even if it's got to be like a quiet and it would seem like a two, that's a ten two. <laughs> that's exactly what it needs to be. <laughs> so fucking good. Anyway, I love the Untouchables. As I said, my top three are all basically tied for number one. Yeah. Uh, it's an incredible movie. Please go see it. What, what's your next pick? Uh, my well, I have like I guess I only have two left. So my uh, my last one before my number one. Uh huh. Is uh, a co- another comedy film like Wayne's okay. World. Uh, it's based on a very short-lived cult comedy series mm. from the 1980s 
uh, that only lasted six episodes, Ow. and yet somehow, uh, <laughs> oh, you sound disappointed. Well, uh, only we'll like talk. only like barely clawed its way into sort of like this cult consciousness. Yeah. But it was just enough for the filmmakers to get a feature film out of it. Yeah. And in fact, they got three feature films out of it. I'm talking about the Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. That is the first um, film in the series mm-hmm. uh, starring Leslie Nielsen as Detective Frank Drebin. Yeah. And it was based off of a uh, failed television series called Police Squad, which we reviewed years ago on Cancel Too Soon, but that episode is still available and you can track it down uh, in our back catalog. Yeah, and the curious thing about uh, Police Squad is it's it's a stone cold classic. Yeah. It is just comedy at its height and yeah. and I don't want any more. I think it was no, cancelled at just the right it, time. If, there's six episodes and you can even see that by episode five they're running a little low on material. Like you really can't mm. like do this twenty episodes a year. Yeah, like you, yeah. you need to you need to save up a little bit, but like I'm the first four or five episodes are solid gold, and like five and six are still really funny. Yeah, they, uh, but they they uh, when it came to the movie, which came out in 1989, yeah. uh, they repeated a lot of the gags from yeah. the show. Um, uh, a lot, all the characters are back. Uh, George Kennedy plays um, his. Uh, the uh, another detective in the yeah. same police squad, like the, the captain of the force yeah, or whatever. Like that. A, he uh, wasn't in the show, but there's a, a, a Q type character, who's sort of yeah. like like the lab guy who's constantly uh, analyzing mm. stuff. All of these cop cliches are but the barest of bones to lay on more gags in a movie than you've ever seen before. And then, this is like the people every, who every gave three, you airplane. Yeah, this like is it's air, that level of constant joke. They're just cracking yeah. the whip on the jokes and yeah. trying to get a gag out of every single moment, and in a way that feels. Organic more than frantic. Yeah. Uh, and. Well, because, uh, again, because all the jokes are planned. Yeah. It's, all, yeah, it's not like all... we're just throwing them in there in the editing room or something like that. Like, no, 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 no. We had to plan to put that weird background joke that's only there if you know to look for it. And also mm. if you're watching in widescreen. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like, they have to they have to work to get those jokes there's, in it. So, there's an, even, even little there. tiny things that you might not notice the first time through when, uh, when Frank Drabin dr- says, I need to drive to the police station. Drives up to a building that says the police station on it. <laughs> Whereas, uh, now we're going to drive over to the hospital and the building says the hospital. Yeah. Uh, little, little tiny gags like that, that you might not even notice. Uh, wonderful cameo from weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. Uh, who, who would return in naked gun 33 and a third. And, final and, and two and a half. Was he in two and a half too? Yeah. Um, two and a half? Uh, there's a, a bit where um, some punk has a gun turned on all the cops mm. and says, "You shut up, you pigs, say your prayers. And Frank Drebin throws the door open and knocks him out. Yeah. Because he gets hit by the door. That's weird Al. That was Weird Al? Yeah. Oh, I don't even remember that like, at like, all. Well, because at the time, he had shaved his mustache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hair, I just weird that I, it's weird that I don't remember that. That's bizarre. That's, okay, that's yeah. Weird Al in that, okay. yeah. So he, he was in all three of those. I look forward to seeing Daniel Radcliffe recreate that scene. Yeah, who's He's going to play Weird Al in a biopic. Uh, that Weird Al is writing, so I hope it's, like, completely fake. I can't imagine it's going to be dead I hope it's, serious. yeah, really, really not, not, here's I my hope childhood in Linwood, California. I hope it's a musical. With Weird Al songs or new songs? Weird, well, new Weird Al songs. Uh, new Weird Al songs. I can't yeah. a couple of classics in the here and there, but like, yeah, I want I want new Weird Al songs about his yeah. life. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, Weird Al has said uh, in, in an interview um, when when he dies, yeah, he really really hopes somebody somebody who writes his obituary has the the presence of mind to say Weird Al eats it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, nice time to give that joke away. Uh, that, that Weird Al is part of this, uh, just is sort of sort of denotes the level of comedy we're working at. It's incredibly absurd. Yeah. It is slapstick. Uh, like Monty Python, everything, like reality itself is just a plaything. Uh, I know that 
fans of the show, mm. I saw the movie first. I saw the movie multiple times before I was even aware of the show because mm. I was a kid. Uh, but uh, fans of the show weren't so fond of the movie because Frank Drebin was altered a little bit. Mm. Uh, and Leslie Nielsen's strength and the reason he was cast in Police Squad is because he played heavies. Yeah. He played very serious uh, sort of stone-faced roles uh, throughout his career. He was yeah. in Forbidden Planet. That's why he was uh, so yeah. brilliant in Airplane is because mm. he he was funny, he was brilliant, he knew what to do, but he was playing it like it was the most serious role in the world. Yeah. He, yeah, he, he, was, he was not making jokes. He yeah. was he was oh, saying the absolute stone yeah. God's honest truth and everything. Yeah. It just happened that the dialogue was absurd. I haven't seen anything this weird since the Anita Bryant concert. You know, he's just you know, yeah. com- completely stone faced. And uh, with uh, the Naked Gun, he's playing up the silly a little bit. Yeah, he's he's, he's a he's, broader. Uh, yeah. uh, he's he's in more of a Abbott and Costello kind of. Well, like there's there's yeah. a bit where he's visiting the bad guy, who's played by Ricardo yeah. Montalban, and yeah. uh, Ricardo Montalban has a a mind control device. He can take over people's brains and force them to commit assassinations. Yeah, and uh, while Ricardo Montalban has his back turned. Uh, Leslie Nielsen is playing with a pen of his and accidentally breaks it and a piece of it goes in the fish tank and he tries reaching in to get it yeah. and then the fish bites him and then it bites his nose. It's like, that's a, an Avant Costello routine. Yeah. It's like a... And, or, that's, and, honestly, and, and that's that's something that would only happen in the movie and not in the TV. And show. honestly, that's the reason why it didn't make my list. As much as I really like the Naked Gun movies, especially the first two, there's good jokes in the third one, but the yeah. first two I think are the, are the funnier ones. Um... As much as I enjoy them, uh, I feel like they turned into a different animal from the series. You just submitted it yourself, um, and I prefer the series. I prefer yeah. this. I prefer the tone, whether because the series was a parody of Dragnet. And Dragnet, if you've ever watched the original Dragnet, one of the most stultifyingly serious shows you've ever seen. Like they, <laughs> they, they do just, not just think it's facts, funny. Man, they yeah. do not think it's funny. They do not think it's interesting. They do not think it's exciting. I, I think they it's, think it's important. Look up the uh, the drug scare film. Oh my of drag- god! <laughs> it's one of the funniest things. There's you'll one see. episode where like t- it's like just uh, uh, Joe Fry. I think it's, I remember it's Friday or whatever. One of them gets to talk about like just drugs and hippies and shit, and mm. it's the most condescending. Yeah. Fucking well, thing. Some, somebody's high and uh, and they're on a train and they keep on yeah. retreating. I'm on a train. I'm on a train. I'm on a train. I'm on a train. I am the train. I am the train. It's like, <laughs> oh, you're thinking of different scenes than I am. I think about oh, like yeah. when they when they get to make their condescending speech about shit. Oh well, there's yeah. there's, 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 there's like a speech about that. hippies where it's like, like oh, here's why hippies are the worst thing. America ever. is going yeah. down the tubes uh, because of these hippies and their marijuana. Yeah, it's so bad. But um, mm. uh, but in any case, I think that's a funnier joke than what the Naked Gun does, which is basically just. Broad, silly slapstick farce, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just think the, the original. Is, I just think I think it got less funny when it went to movies. That's I, my I only th- argument. I think it's still unbelievably funny, and okay. as as a broad slapstick farce, it is first rate. Okay, um, it, it is on par with Airplane and and Top Secret. Like the, those mm. three films, just are belong in sort of a trifecta of some of the, and because they're all made by the same filmmakers, uh, Zucker, Abrams, Zucker, and. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they're they're all of a piece. They all have sort of a similar slapstick sense of humor. They don't repeat gags between those three a lot. No, uh, pretty astonishingly, I no. think Top Secret is the biggest, most ambitious of the three. Yeah, well, they, re- they repeat one of the types of ever. gags. Yeah, they repeat types of gags a lot, but they don't repeat yeah. the exact gag. But yeah, then you're right, and I, I agree. I think Top Secret. Oh, and is and, a- uh, and you can fold Hot Shots. Oh, yeah, in there totally. as well. Yeah, and, and listen, all of those movies are funny. To one degree or another. Some are funnier than others. Some of them are arguably better made than others. Yeah. Uh, hell, I'll go to bat for Jane Austen's Mafia. That movie makes me laugh. Yeah. Uh, but, and I like Great Naked Gun a lot. It's on my honorable mentions. It just didn't make my top ten for the reasons that I said. Um, my next, my number two, and again, this is all tied for number one, my top three. 
uh, is an interesting exa- is an example because, I, to the best of my knowledge, mm-hmm. it is the first movie based on a television series, not a remake of a TV movie, no. but based on a television series that was nominated for Best Picture, hmm. and they were wise to do so. Okay. I am referring to The Fugitive. Yes. Starring Harrison Ford. Uh, it was nominated the same year as Schindler's List, so it was never going to win. <laughs> but it did It did win Best Supporting Actor for Tommy Lee Jones, mm. and I think with good cause. Uh, the Fugitive is based on an enormously successful television series about a doctor uh, whose wife was murdered. He was wrongfully accused of that murder. All he knows is that a one-armed man did it. And he runs around every episode trying to find the real identity of who killed his wife and why. And along the way, he gets into a variety of different adventures as he gets involved in different people's lives. It's a formula that would be uh, used and adapted into the, everything from uh, The Incredible Hulk yeah, well, uh, to Kung Fu. It was, to, it was you know, a big part of, um, of you know, the Hitchcock. One, yeah. Yeah, the one, well, the, 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 the episodic nature was the wandering hero gets into an adventure yeah, every yeah. week. Uh, but uh, the actual wrong man thing was a Hitchcockian conceit, which basically is brilliant because it means he can't trust anyone he can't stay in one place very long and he's always got to be looking over his shoulder he can never get comfortable yeah um it was an enormously successful television series and you would think perhaps that turning it into a movie would ruin it because you're not going to have that like long that episodic feel that feel that like he's like he's it's his whole life is doomed what they did was they crafted like the ultimate Hitchcockian '90s thriller, which is spectacularly well structured, actually very loosely scripted. A lot of the dialogue is is ad libbed, mm. um, but uh, it stars Harrison Ford as a doctor. His wife is played by I think Celia Ward uh, is killed. He knows a one armed man did it. He is very swiftly railroaded, and for, they don't even have a good motive. Like no one knows why he did it. Even they just assume he did. Uh, when she, her dying words over nine one one are easily misconstrued, uh, right. and uh, so uh, so he's going to he's going to die like he's going to be executed. There is a spectacular bus crash which leads to a spectacular train crash, where because he's a doctor because he's a good man he is constantly putting himself in danger in order to save other people, and yeah. that's a great conceit for an action movie. The idea is here's a guy whose entire thing is I can't get caught. I am looking out for myself. I am protecting myself. Damn it, I have to now commit myself to saving some guy who probably would kill me if he had a chance just because it's the right thing to do. So that episodic nature where he can't help but get involved in someone's life because it's the right thing to do becomes not an episodic movie but a Mm. character trait, which is really strong writing. And it really makes every single scene in this really exciting. Uh the Fugitive was directed by a director who's not really a household name. His name is Andrew Davis. Yeah. And uh, Andrew Davis did uh, a lot of these types of movies. Yeah, he, he did, did Under like, Siege, yeah, which un- is a very good film. Un- Under Siege, yeah. Uh, Easily uh, Steven Seagal's a, best. Another Steven Seagal film called Above the Law. Which is uh, pretty a good. A little earlier. Um, he yeah. did uh, a film with Gene Hackman called The Package. You know, yeah. another taught thriller with guns. His, his probably his latest yeah. film that's very well regarded is the Disney film Holes. 
A lot and, of people grew is, up with that film and love it. Uh, well, I was, I was going to point to Holes as kind of the outlier because mm. Holes is a little bit of a, a, a little bit more of a fantasy. The, the premise is mm. uh, a teenage boy is sent away to essentially juvenile hall, but it's like a work camp. Yeah. And uh, as therapy, mm-hmm. the uh, the really cruel uh, masters of this yeah, played by Sigourney Weaver and I've actually never and seen and it. A, a few other else. like yeah, cr- yeah. cruel adults uh, yeah. are saying that this this therapy is just to dig holes in the desert all day. Uh-huh. Yeah, just keep on digging. Physical labor will yeah. will heal your soul. Yeah, and, that kind and, of thing, and of yeah. course, there's a scam. There, there's actually like treasure buried, and they're using these yeah. kids to look for it. Yeah. Um, Based but, on a YA book. Yeah. But yeah, it's by Louis Sakar, who uh, wrote Sideways Stories from Wayside School, one of the, one of my favorite oh, cool. children's books. Uh, anyway, but yeah, that's a little bit more about. Uh, like a, a little bit more of an emotional journey. It's mm-hmm. a lot less about thrills and taut action. Yeah. So Andrew Davis has a lot of capability and he, he's done about a dozen movies. Yeah. And yet we don't know who he is. Yeah. He's, he's kind of disappears into his movie. Mm. He doesn't have a signature style. Mm. Um, and I think that works here. This is a, because this keeps the movie really focused on the actors. Mm. And one of the great things about this version of the fugitive is even though it's obviously very high concept, um, Everyone keeps it super grounded. I would actually argue this might be Harrison Ford's best performance. I think um, he's completely that's, committed that's to fair, this. Yeah. I think he's completely committed to this part. Um, and I believe him at, at every single turn. Tommy Lee Jones is fantastic here. There's also just a ton of really, really great small supporting roles. Uh, a lot of people who were like in uh, Tommy Lee Jones's um, uh, sort of unit of U.S. Marshals who are tracking down escaped criminals are like, all really great character actors who would get more and more work as time went on. People like uh, Daniel Roebuck and Joe Pantoliano. Um, the plotting is pretty tight. Uh, it's based around a number of really, really great sequences that are really uh, pushing Tommy Lee Jones to be clever and also pushing Harrison Ford to be clever in very different ways. Um, it's just, it's just, it holds up great. It really does. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it. It really holds yeah, up good. I, like I can't think of. Uh, it's it's too it's, many objectionable things. It's smart like, that, without. That might have it's it's smart like. without trying to talk over you. It's not like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy smart, where they're mm. as much as I love that movie, they're kind of showing off it's, just how how intricately plotted it can be. Like no, it's, it's just. That, that, I think that movie is meant to be unfollowable. A little it's, bit. It's and, really difficult. But like here, it's just like what would a smart person do in this situation? Yeah. What would a smart person do to try to catch them? Boom. That's the whole movie. <laughs> Everyone's intelligent. Everyone is making mm. smart choices. Uh, it's got a wonderfully gripping score. The editing is just like a fucking whip. It just cracks. Um, I love this movie, and I think mm. it doesn't get talked about enough. I don't think it gets enough respect. Um, there are other movies based on television that were nominated for and even won Best Picture. Marty was based on a TV movie. Uh, traffic oh, was based right, yeah. on a TV miniseries that was nominated as well. But to the best of my knowledge, this is the only one ever based on a TV series hmm. to be nominated for Best Picture that I can recall. If anyone can think of an exception, please let me know. Yeah, I'm trying to, yeah I don't think yeah. so. Unless uh, no. Mid- Midnight Cowboy, the animated series. Oh, well, yeah, that was that. that was that was brief, though. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't even think that's... Uh, no, I don't think that's a thing. But, um, that was anyway, a failed pilot. That was, uh, oh, yeah. Hey, Heat was based off of a failed pilot. Oh, was it really? Heat is a remake of a failed TV pilot for a show called L.A. Takedown. In fact, the actual like scene in Heat where uh, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro like meet and have dinner together, the dialogue's almost verbatim. 
Oh, cool. You can watch that scene on, like, on YouTube and be like, oh, shit. Who were the actors? Because oh, I'm sure no. it wasn't Pacino. No, no. <laughs> it was not. They, they would not uh, be doing TV at that let point. Me see about, let me see. They're, they're, not, they're not super famous actors. Let me see. It was, uh, it's, uh, Scott Plank, Alex MacArthur. Uh, some of the smaller characters uh, are played by people like Michael Rooker, okay. Xander Berkeley, and Daniel Baldwin. Okay. Um, I know I know who they are. Uh, yeah. Alexander Berkeley. Yeah, but Scott Plank and Alex MacArthur are like the two main leads. Oh, and okay. you, there's a, there's a uh, Scott Plank is probably best known for starring in Melrose Place and that and Alex MacArthur uh I'm looking at his filmography here. Uh, <laughs> he had an uncredited role as a doctor in Devil in the Flesh 2. Uh, he was also oh, in Devil like, in the Flesh One as a different character. So there you go. So Devil in the Flesh is like straight to video softcore smut. Uh man, not, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's. I feel like the, I. I actually interviewed Rose McGowan about it once, uh, and she talks about how when she signed on, it wasn't. Oh, and then like they the gra- they gradually they? added more smut as the movie got kept going, oh, wow. and she was really mad about it. Um, but he was also had small roles and stuff like Kiss the Girls and Conspiracy Theory that oh, kind okay. of thing. So he never he never really got a, a big big break apparently. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Um, but I digress. That's, anyway, that's that's my number uh, two. I guess, yeah, I guess the future se- second to last. Anyway, second to last. Yeah. And what's what's your uh, pick for the best uh, movie based on a TV series? You can probably guess what it is. It's uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. That's my number one. As yeah, well. that's what I, I yeah. figured it was because it is uh, the best yeah. film based on a TV series. Uh, you are the our other picks on the list, notwithstanding. Um, yeah. Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is, it's another one of those show, uh, films that I watched before I was familiar with the show. Oh, that must be uh, weird. Well, I mean, it's David Lynch. I mean, it's Lynch. weird anyway. It's, it's a David Lynch film. It's I was weird be, even if you are familiar I, with I the figured, show, but it must have yeah. been like really a bizarre I was kind, kind of off balance anyway. I knew, yeah. I knew the general thrust of the show that, that Laura Palmer was dead mm-hmm. and that the film was a prequel to the events of the TV series. Which it is, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, so we got to see Laura Palmer while she was still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, teenager Laura Palmer, played by Cheryl Lee, who I think was 30 at the time. Yeah, she plays uh, well, though. She's a really good actor. Yeah, she, she's she's Cheryl, brilliant in this movie. Cheryl Lee is uh, completely underrated as a performer because uh, Twin Peaks is such a strange role for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she does a lot of like screaming and panicking at mm-hmm. things where you wouldn't ordinarily scream and panic. But that's David Lynch. He sets his films inside nightmares. Yeah. And there's a lot of sort of surreal dream imagery throughout Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. You know, the, the, the people from the other place who just sort of yeah. the boy in the mask who becomes a, an ape in one scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this uh, what's her name? Francis Day, the old lady. Oh yeah, uh, this would look nice on her on your wall. Yeah, yeah hold she, on. We'll she's a, uh, she was also in Blue Velvet. She yeah. was in uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Um, yeah, so we get to see uh, the cops investigating the death of Francis um, Francis Bay. Francis Bay, excuse yeah, me. Sorry, yeah, um, we get to see uh, the Feds played mm-hmm. by. Kiefer Sutherland and Chris Isaac. Yeah, at first you think it's going to be about like Dale Cooper investigating these murders earlier. It turns out he was not the first detective on the scene. Mm. It was actually... Uh, uh... First off, I think Kiefer Sutherland is always at his best when he's playing Meek. Yeah. When he's playing, when he's playing like a badass tough guy, he's fine. But when he's playing like he can he, play threatening quite well. You, you know, you know who he who who honestly like when he's like in this zone, mm. he's perfect. Peter Lorre. Uh, yeah, when you look I at his performance in like Dark City, when you look at his performance mm. here, where he's like more of a sidekick, 
He's or... magical. Uh, I, I think he gets to do both in, in a, an incredibly sleazy film from the 90s called Freeway. Yeah, uh, I'm, that's I'm, true. I'm very fond of Freeway. Yeah, uh, that, movie's it, nuts. That, that movie's. Yeah, sick. It's but, wonderful. But Chris Isaac uh, is also just no well, perfect and, here. And uh, this was I watched this at a time before the, before the internet and mm. before you know even when I was reading movie magazines, there weren't always pictures of the directors. I didn't know what these people looked like. Ah, but I knew David Lynch was in it because he had a credit. So you thought Chris? I Isaac thought Chris was Isaac was David Lynch. <laughs> Because he's like, he's clear, Chris Isaac is a singer and he's not that yeah. great an actor and he's like no. kind of sleepy and laconic. It's like, that guy seems like he could be directing this. Yeah. I didn't realize it was the guy with the earpiece yelling, Oregon! <laughs> uh, you have a really good David Lynch. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a bubblegum head. Anyway, they, they spend the first big chunk of the movie investigating the first murder of uh, Killer Bob, the uh, force mm. behind, uh, I, I don't want to give too much away in the movie, but um, uh the, the the initial murders that we hear about in the Twin Peaks before Laura Palmer dies, uh, and then he mysteriously disappears. He he's seen of oh, the, oh, the ring is a very important yeah. symbol throughout Twin Peaks, and yeah. uh, he sees it underneath. I think it's underneath a car. It's, it's like underneath under a trailer. A, under, it's underneath um, a trailer. Yeah, and, and he reaches out to grab it, and and it swiftly fades to black, and he's just out of the story. He's he's vanished. Yeah, we never talk about it again. And then uh, we're following for a little bit of the time we follow uh Agent Dale Cooper played by Kyle McLaughlin, but the majority of his role is he's at FBI headquarters and he starts getting really invested in the security cam footage and he like stands out in the hallway and looks at the security camera then he goes into the security room and looks at the empty hallway then he goes back on the on the monitor on a monitor he looks at the empty hallway on the monitor then he goes back into the hallway and looks at the security camera and he does this a couple of times and then finally he stands there and looks at the security camera in the hallway and then walks into the security room and when he looks at the screen now Dale Cooper is still there Mm. and then David Bowie walks in behind him <laughs> that scene freaks me the fuck out the yeah. first time. I had no idea what the hell was going on. I just knew that that is not right. And David Bowie goes on a very weird rant, which will make no sense whatsoever until Twin Peaks: The Return came out like twenty years later. By the way, <laughs> um, but I'm not going to talk about Judy. Judy is not a person. Judy is a god. What the fuck are we talking about? We'll leave her out of this. Ah. And he points to Dale Cooper. Who do you think this is? There. Uh, so weird. Yeah, it, it, it's but it's terrifying, yeah. and and indeed fear hangs in the air of, of yeah. Twin Peaks. And I, then we finally we settle down. Up. We we settle down yeah. when we get to Laurel Palmer, but she's living in a nightmare world. Yeah, she... and we actually get to as I would eventually yeah. uh, discover on the series, they described her life, and now we just get to see it dramatized. Yeah. When when the beginning of the, of Twin Peaks is literally they find Laura Palmer's body. That's literally the first scene, and. Over the course of the series, we find out that although she seemed on the outside to everyone around her like she had this idyllic life, she was actually extremely tortured in many, in literally and figuratively. Uh, she had an incredibly rough life. She was victim of all kinds of horrible things from a variety of different people. And as we uncover layer after layer of Laura Palmer's life, we realize that what she was involved with and who she was involved with uh, ends up sort of creating this ripple effect throughout the entire town, like any great mystery would. Um, the series is about how people see Laura Palmer. Mm. Fire Walk With Me is what it was like to be Laura Palmer. And the most tragic moments in this movie, aside from the scenes of horrifying abuse, 
is when she's trying to connect with people around her, her best friend, her two boyfriends, hmm. uh, and they can't see her. They can't, even the nice guy with the motorcycle, who's like all like sappy and romantic, all he can see is how oh, perfect oh, she is. Who is the, the oh, it's what's his Bobby. name? Bobby. No, no, Bobby. No, Bobby was the coke dealer. Bobby oh, was uh, so Bobby Briggs was played by Dana Ashbrook. Oh right, um, yeah. Bob, Bobby was the, the the bad boy, and yeah. the, the gentle soul was. Uh, um, what's what's James Marshall? James Early. J- James. He played yeah. James Early, and his name was James Marshall. Um, yeah, all he can see is how perfect she is, and he doesn't realize that he's not seeing her. Yeah, she is desperate and lonely, and feels like she can't reach out and talk to con- and confide in anyone mm-hmm. because she's going through something truly hellish. Um. And this movie understands that loneliness. This movie understands that you can enjoy solving the mystery of Laura Palmer, but you could never enjoy being Laura Palmer. And at well, the heart of Twin Peaks is something yeah. that is truly ugly. And I think that's why a lot of people didn't like it when it came out, because the move the show was easy to watch. And well, this the, was the very sh- difficult to watch. What I found curious about uh, Twin Peaks is one of the weirdest hits uh, in TV history, because uh, it, it's... It, it's a mystery. It's part mystery, part soap opera, but it also yeah. has like a lot of elements of surrealism in it, yeah. and uh, it, it's sort of difficult to follow. And all the characters are not quite human, and mm-hmm. a lot of the events are really kind of strange and dreamy. And yet, it was a big hit show. Yeah. Uh, and what I find really curious about Twin Peaks, talking to a lot of the people who like Twin Peaks, they got into. Uh, the more conventional TV elements of it, the mm. mystery of it, or yeah. the drama between the characters. It's David Lynch filtered mm. through what was popular on TV at the time. Yeah, and yeah. you get to the movie, and that's more David Lynch doing what he does with his yeah. feature films. He's yeah. telling you a story through uh, nightmare fear beats, essentially. Yeah, he's uh, making the, the, an art the, house yeah. film. He's not, he, when he was working in network television, he made network television. Mm. It was weird network television. There's a couple episodes of Twin Peaks that are as bizarre as any of his films, but mostly they're nestled in stuff that you can wrap your head around. The movie is has none of that safety net, and and I feel like because of that, it's a lot more uh, it's a lot more pure. I mm-hmm. think this is David Lynch sort of making the Twin Peaks that it was always kind of meant to be. Yeah, and you can tell uh, when he came of, back yeah. for Twin Peaks: The Return, it's all fire walk with me. Yeah, it's yeah, none. It's, of, it's almost none of the show. It's it's almost all firewalk with me. Mm. It's just much more abstract. Although he's yeah. he's uh, he's an older director. By the time yeah. he makes Twin Peaks: The Return, he's mellowed out a little bit. So it's a lot. Mm. Even though there's a lot of chaos and screaming and violence, mm-hmm. there's also a heck of a lot of humor and funny moments. Yeah, it's not quite as terrifying, yeah. but it's all. But it is. It's not trying to be a soap opera anymore. No. It's not. No, no. Uh, there's a couple so of cute moments and allusions to that, but no, it's not trying to do that. I've, I've always found it a little curious hearing mm. conversations about Twin Peaks that are focusing on the characters and their relationships when mm. really this is about all, all about Laura Palmer mm. and the nightmare of her death bleeding into everything. I think if your experience with Twin Peaks was you watched it when it was on the air mm. or you watched it and, or, and, and, and or you watched on the air. Well, also, Twin, uh, David Lynch did a wonderful <laughs> sitcom called On the Air, which is very weird and definitely worth seeking out. Uh, but if you watched Twin Peaks when it was on initially, and Far Walk with Me wasn't quite your jam, then you're probably looking at it as a story about an ensemble cast of characters. Yeah. And as that, it worked great. It was actually a really strong ensemble. It lost its way about halfway through season two, but at, by the end of season two, it did find its way back. And it yeah. was a better show for the last few episodes. Um, 
But regardless, I get that. That's what Twin Peaks was at that time. And then it just evolved. It's almost like um, it's almost like how comic book characters evolve. If you keep telling a story long enough, mm. it will change whether you realize it or not. Yeah. And people will come in at different times and people will respond to different things based on who they are, what their generation is interested in or exposed to artistically. And as a result... Your Iron Man is different from the 60s Iron Man. Your Twin Peaks The Return is very different from Twin Peaks Season 1. Yeah. But they're still the same thing. And if you follow along and you can wrap your head around that kind of evolution, you're going to get a hell of a lot out of it. Um, I think Twin Peaks Where I Walk With Me is... I've talked a bit about how movies based on TV shows have a couple of different ways to go. You could try to recapture what the show did really, really well in a movie form. You could follow up on that and try to make try to sequelize it. Uh, you could try to transform it and turn it into something completely different. And I think Twin Peaks Far Walk With Me kind of does all of those things. Yeah, uh, It yeah. captures an element of the show that was underserved because it was all about how other people looked at Laura Palmer. And it exposed Laura Palmer. Mm. And just and honestly, it's it's I, I think it's pointing a finger at the audience and saying, how dare you find this fun? Like, it, yeah. you should not well, have been it's... amused by this. This has always been horrifying. So there's yeah. that, and it's also transforming into a different entity entirely. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, I think it works on right yeah. in the walls. Um, it, it's, uh, and David Lynch uh, deliberately issues, like, interpretation mm-hmm. of his work. Like He the, doesn't like telling you what it means. Well, I, I think... I think David Lynch has sort of the naked lunch approach, naked the actual meaning of the book uh, yeah. that William S. Burroughs, uh, the, the title means naked lunch, just what's on the fork. Mm-hmm. Uh, no no dressing, like kind of a pure version of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, consciousness unfiltered. Yeah. And uh, so when he, he presents you with a film, it's all, in his mind, it's all there. Yeah. What you are meant to see in the movie is in the mm. movie. There's not going to be another layer of interpretation. There's not an exercise yeah. folded it, into it. it. You you don't want to uh, like, you know, Twin Peaks explained. Mm. No, Twin Peaks explained itself. Yeah. And if it's, you need, if all, someone so, else is telling you that, that's them adding to it. Yeah, that's so, not uh, the film. There are a lot of, in addition to people who get into sort of the soap opera aspects, there's a lot of people who get into the the psychological or the symbolic aspects of it. And yeah. surely there are symbolic, you know, in the union oh, sense. a ton of symbolic uh, and that show. That uh, David Lynch is putting in deliberately or not. He's just sort of putting yeah. out there what's in his mind. And those kinds of things, are those conversations are fun to have. Yeah. But I think it robs the film of a very important sense of... Uh, frantic immediacy mm. and emotional purity what, that uh, only David, I think only David Lynch films kind of tap into that level of fear, hate and death. I look at some, and I don't look at every David Lynch film the same way. I don't think the straight story is operating well, on this level, for example, but I'm thinking of something I, like eraser. No, but like a lot of his films, so the yeah. stuff, the stuff that kind of uh, uh, typifies his work, you know, your Mulholland drives, your uh, inland empires, that kind of thing. Yeah. Lost highway. And indeed, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is uh, David Lynch feels like he, he, the, the act of watching a David Lynch movie, a typical David Lynch movie where he's in the pure dream state. Is like the moment you are presented with a Rorschach test, but before the moment you tell people what you saw. You it's go. basically like for a second, it's like, oh, that looks like, wait a minute. I don't know what that looks like. Wait a minute. This is abstract, but it does kind of look like a bat. Like, you know, like the, <laughs> there's that moment where your brain is trying to process what it is. Mm. He has managed to bottle that moment of, mm. of, uh, uh, it's, recognition, it's like, mm. but also uncertainty. 
There's a, a where your subconscious is basically flying. Yeah, a, a kind of uh, discordian. Yeah, uh, might be the term. Um, yeah, maybe d- discordianism is uh, an entire yeah. uh, sort of fringe ethos. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's like kind evil of Weird Al Yankovic music. More or less, uh, where, where you're, well, it's, the idea is when you're, you're presented with something, uh, that your first reaction is not going to be one of understanding. It's going to be yeah. one of, even if it's a familiar object, yeah. there's going to be a split moment where your brain is still putting it together. Wait, wait, and, why uh, am I looking at this? Why and yeah, yeah. And it's, it's like, that is a cat. Uh, and yeah. It's that brief moment where your your sort of your neurons are still sort of firing mm-hmm. that your mind is in a complete state of chaos. Exactly, exactly. And, my point, and uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's that that little moment prolonged into a two hour and fifteen minute movie. And you know someone's doing that on purpose, but you don't necessarily know if they have an actual purpose behind what they're showing you. Mm. The act of activating of firing all those neurons at once—that's the purpose. And that what you get out of that will be singular to you. That is your gift. Um, and that's something that is not for everyone. It's a weird and confrontational way to tell stories. Uh, but I think <laughs> but if you I, can, I, I love it. I, still I think love it. if you if if you can get behind it, if that's, that's your yeah, jam or if you can it. if you can understand it and appreciate it, and if you think that's that's exciting, hmm. again, not everyone does, but if you think it is, uh, there's nothing quite like it. And David Lynch at his best is unsurpassed at that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that is our list. Uh, real fast, I'm going to run down because people yeah. people ask us sometimes, like, hey, could you say the list again at the end just because you want to write it down or whatever? Uh, here are the lists. Here's my list. And again, only number one counts, but this was it in order. Uh, Adam's Family Values, uh, Monty Python on the Holy Grail, Sean the Sheep movie, Speed Racer, a Goofy movie, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, The Untouchables, The Fugitive, and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Whitney's picks were The Addams Family, the original film with uh, Barry Sonnefeld, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Thunderbirds are Go, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, uh, Batman, the movie, that's the live-action film from the 1960s, uh, Head, the Monkeys movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Wayne's World, The Naked Gun from the Files of the Police Squad, and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Whitney, I'm sure you had some runners-up. Is there anything you want to mention? Uh, well, a, a lot of the ones you mentioned, actually, because The Fugitive and The Untouchables were also on my runners-up. I'm surprised The Untouchables um, didn't make your top ten. Isn't it great? I like it fine. All right. <laughs> I like it more than that. I, I even got to see it uh, with a Q&A with... Um, uh, De Palma? Uh, no, with David Mamet. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> uh, you know, David Mamet, who's cynical about everything. Well, yeah. Uh, and yeah, just sort of, mm. it's like, yeah, I wrote The Untouchables. Yeah, this big piece of junk. Oh, fuck like, you, dude. Like, he's, he's very dismissive of uh, David. Okay. He, he feels it's one of his lesser works. Um, uh, well, he's wrong about uh, that. There were multiple films based on the TV series Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, first four, mixed, mixed bag. Uh, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, one of the best spy movies ever. Uh, it's like one of the best action movies ever. Yeah. I would say that, yeah. Uh, the Muppet movie yes. is really wonderful and sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has 
very little to do with the actual TV show, and it does not match the tone of the TV show at all. But well, it's Tales, Tales from the Crypt presents Demon Knight ah, uh, is yeah. is a just a a really fun, silly horror action comedy yeah, that's film. That's the only reason it didn't make my list is it's really not the show. It's yeah, just the, they threw the show's name the, on the a show different is, movie. The show is like this wicked yeah. uh, story, like morality stories of yeah. revenge and jealousy and lust. And, yeah. That's and not the movie's, Demon Knight at all. No, it's, it's like an act. It's a siege picture yeah. with demons. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. But yeah, it's not really a good adaptation of the show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I um, Say what you will about Mel Gibson as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very uh, a very charming movie star in a movie called Maverick. Yeah, before we knew Western. he was this piece of shit. Yeah, he was yeah, he, so, he was, was a charming actor. Uh, Maverick's a good film. And you can latch on to James Garner, who's mm-hmm. really terrific in that movie, and Jodie Foster, who's never been funnier. Jodie Foster is really witty. She's a great sort of femme fatale presence in that film. Like she's it's a little against type for her, but she nails it. Well, she, she's like a, a somewhere between a femme fatale and like a, a, a blushing coquette. It's it's more like the type of role she used to play when she was doing Disney movies. Yeah. Than yeah. when she like, grew up and started doing like movies as an adult. Like, but like that kind of like, yeah, I'm a teenager, but I'm also a con artist working at a so carnival uh, and I'm going to charm a... the fuck out of a millionaire and I'm going to find out I'm really his daughter. <laughs> <sighs> like that kind of shit. Yeah, like and, that's what Jodie Foster's wheelhouse was. He was shot by Richard Donner who yeah. just ma- makes really wonderful movies. Uh, so Maverick is quite a good film. Uh, if, if you can look past Mel Gibson, um, <laughs> some people can't, and I'm yeah, not going to force totally you fair. to. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> forgive me for this one, but I really like that George of the Jungle movie. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> that made my up too. Oh, did it really? That's okay. a charming movie. That is yeah, a surprisingly it's, funny. It's bright and brisk and silly. The and jokes fun work. It and, knows exactly how seriously yeah. it needs to take the material, which yeah. is just enough that you care about and, the characters but that's it and, and every human being regardless of their gender or sexuality had a crush on brendan fraser after that oh yeah <laughs> yeah he's just absolutely dreamy and ridiculous yeah. uh and uh we did a commentary track for mystery science theater 3000 the movie which yeah. uh, f- a fine film version of the tv show mm-hmm. uh they, they tried to make it feel a little bit bigger than the show and mm-hmm. but still sort of maintaining that homemade quality mm-hmm. and i think they succeeded okay uh, so they have some really great riffs in it. Uh, they managed to land like a a slightly classier movie than they do on the TV. It's show. actually not that bad a film, but no. it's it's also kind of got its head up its worthy, butt. Worthy like, of yeah. mockery. Yeah, that's yeah. okay. Is that it? Is that your uh, yeah, those are okay. Runners okay, cool. Um, well, uh, in addition to some of those, uh, a movie that I love and I was almost put on my list, but then I realized I really can't talk about the original show that much mm-hmm. uh, is the Castle of Cagliostro. Okay. Uh, which is Hayao Miyazaki's first uh, feature film. It is a feature-length animated movie that was conceived of, written, animated, post-production, and released in half a year. And it is one of the best and most influential animated movies ever made. <laughs> it's it's really fun. It's really entertaining. It's, it's really... It's, 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 yeah. it's a... I mean... Uh... Miyazaki is better known for sort of his sense of mm. uh, placid uh, sense of place, of mm-hmm. flight, and wonderment. Yeah. And all the, of those things are in Castle of Cagliostro. There's even a wonderful, almost a flying scene yeah. where he accidentally jumps onto a tower, like jumps like across a, a 100-foot chasm. Yeah. He, he ends up like slipping down a rooftop and just in order to prevent from dying has to like leap from rooftop to rooftop. Yeah. Uh, but this has got more of a, this is more of an Indiana Jones or Tintin kind of vibe. Yeah, it's I was, more, it's I was more gonna, playful I was actually, adventure. actually going to compare it to Tintin. It's yeah. actually a lot more of, of an adventure picture yeah. than a lot of Miyazaki's other and movies. I, and the reason why I left it off the list is because I know a lot of people who are familiar with the original series, Lupin the Third. 
that it was based on. And when the Castle of Calgary show came out, apparently a lot of people rejected it because it was seen as a bad adaptation of the series. The tone mm. was too light. Yeah. It was more of a noirish kind of thing. And a lot of the later I've, I've versions seen, of Lupin yeah. the Third that I've seen are a lot darker. I've seen other. Uh, I haven't seen any of the live action films, and I really would like to. I've but, seen a couple. Um, they're not bad. Okay. But I did see at least one of the other animated films, and and they're right. It's actually is a yeah. little bit harder edged. Yeah, much much harder edged. A lot of them. So <laughs> but I, I so love it, the castle. Like, and I didn't feel war. like I could have that conversation very well, but right. I do highly recommend it, and it's a great movie. Uh, Disney started ripping it off immediately. You can see it in the Great Mouse Detective uh, right away. Uh, uh. The Brady Bunch movie and a very Brady sequel are really really funny. Some of it's dated very very badly, but they're a great commentary on nostalgia yeah, about how if you are... bring nostalgia into the present, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It only works in the past. Yeah. Uh, and that's very, very smart, and it works really, really great. Wayne's World and Wayne's World 2 made my runners-up. The Blues Brothers made my runners-up. I still think it's the best Saturday Night Live movie. Uh, 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street are very, very funny. Oh, you know what? I didn't think of those. They, they almost made my top ten. They're really great. 21, th- those are both quite funny movies. Yeah, just just the the, the hit-to-miss ratio on those jokes are astounding mm. in that. Um, Heat what, what is, came what, close because it was based on a pilot, but I thought that was cheating. What's um, the what's the what gag in Twenty One Jump Street where yeah. uh, Channing Tatum is like a bit of a dim bulb? Yeah, and uh, he tries to put something together and he can't, and so he punish, he like yells at his own brain. Oh, he says, "Fuck you, brain! Fuck you, brain!" Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's when they're talking about they're, I think it's in Twenty Two Jump Street when uh, they're they're looking for a drug that's called Wi Fi. And they're going undercover in college, and they're trying to figure out where can we get this Wi-Fi. And Channing Tatum says, well, I heard you can get Wi-Fi anywhere on campus. And he's like, are you sure that we're talking about the internet? And he goes, oh, fuck you, brain. (laughs) (laughs) So great. Did you say something cool when you threw the grenade? Yeah, I did. did. I said something cool. What'd you say? I said something cool. It's just literally throwing a grenade going, something Something cool! cool! So great. Um... It probably should have made the list, but it's so goddamn funny. Um, Good Burger, we just did an episode of Critically Reclaimed about that. That's a very weird and sweet film. I think it deserves an honorable mention. Um, I have a soft spot. It's a stupid movie. I wouldn't call it a good one per se, but it's operating on the level it's trying to. For the A-Team. Oh, I hate the A-Team. There's a scene in the A-Team where they fly a tank. I'm sorry. That's gloriously stupid. It's, 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 that's gloriously it's a, it's a stupid. It's stupid concept, yeah. but it's not filmed in a very fun way. Nah, uh, well, there's a reason it's a runner-up. One, one, one of the things I appreciate about the A-Team, though. Mm. Um, yeah. Dwight Schultz is in the original The A-Team. Sure. He plays um, I don't know. Uh, the, like, the kooky one. Oh, uh, the one played by Charlton mm. Copley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll look at that, th- that character. I think I lost um, a schmodown based on that question. But, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Shoto Copley plays him and uh, plays that character yeah. in, in the, the new A-Team movie. Yeah. But uh, in the course of that movie, he is uh, in an asylum. Howling Mad Murdoch. Murdoch. He plays Murdoch. Yeah. Murdoch is in an asylum and yeah. uh, the other characters have to break him out. And the, the inmates in the asylum have gathered for movie night and they're watching an imaginary movie. Yeah, like a fake film, yeah. A fake movie. And the fake movie stars an actor named Reginald Barkley, who is the name of the Star Trek character played by Dwight Schultz wow. on Next Generation. Now so that's a deep cut. That was a cute little deep cut that I got because I'm a, a Trekkie. That is a very deep cut. But, uh, oh my God. Yeah, Dwight Schultz isn't in the movie as far as I know. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, but... They that's made a, they made a shout out to Dwight Schultz by naming like giving a fake credit to another character weird, who played on a man. different show. <laughs> that's weird. Okay, moving on. Uh, a movie that most people hate, but I think if you if you're familiar with like not just the source material but the source genre, mm. um, it's actually quite fun. Tim Burton's Dark Shadows. 
Dark Shadows is is a delight. Dark Shadows is a funny series mm. that combines our love of horror and, assuming you have this love, and not a lot of people these days do, of daytime soap operas. Yeah, it is a it is a parody of something that is already kind of outdated. So I can I can see maybe why it didn't hit, but yeah. it's it's fun. Um, I struggled to declare whether the Ernest movies are based on a TV show, but they're based on TV commercials. So I'm going to give a um, shout out to Ernest Saves Christmas, which I think is a very sweet Christmas movie. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, it's an if. It's, it's why I didn't I didn't sure. seriously consider it, but I thought yeah. I mentioned it here. Um, the the movie based on Dragnet is a weird beast. It, it's nothing to do with the show at all. It, it's uh, it's like Dan Aykroyd plays like the son of the original Joe Friday, and he's got kind of that like that like serious tone, but it's a broad, broad comedy with him and Tom Hanks. And I'm sorry, it makes me laugh. I don't know. It's not great, but it makes me laugh. George, the jungle made my runners up. Uh, the man from uncle made my runners up. That's a very fun, stylish movie. Uh, mission impossible one, three and five. I think, (laughs) I think are the, I know a lot of people love fallout. The stunts are great. The actual movie itself. Not so much for me. Uh, I I like the De Palma film, but it's, it's a little, Mm. It's a little dry, weirdly enough. It's it's not taking it seriously, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe too seriously. But until it gets to the ch- where there's a helicopter yeah. like channel, and all of a sudden it's like, what the fuck is happening? Well, you movie? you earned that helicopter yeah. is basically the, by that point. The, the heist sequence yeah. is really the highlight of, yeah. of the first Mission Impossible. Uh, the the third one, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's good. He, and, he nails uh, it. He he elevates yeah. that whole material. Yeah, and then a, five rules. Five is amazing. and, and f- yeah, five is yeah. and and I and I love Fallout as well. The Fallout's sixth one, a, it's a fun watch. I would just put it in fourth. You know, so I figured is, that point. is it. I think it's Rogue Nation where mm. uh, Tom Cruise is uh, chained to a pole, and he like flips his body upside down oh, yeah. while holding onto the pole with his hands and like kicks his legs up. Yeah, like climbing the pole in reverse. Yeah. Like, what the it's hell? A, I've never cool seen shit. anything like that. It's cool shit, man. Uh, another uh, another Michael Mann joint, uh, Miami Vice, is mm. wonderfully stylish. Odd film in some ways, but very stylish. Uh, I quite liked Mr. Peabody and Sherman, which is an animated film about mm. having a single gay dad. Uh, yeah, another, another... And also time travel. Another Jay Ward, because it's, yeah. it's George of the Jungle as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's quite delightful, actually. I like I, that a lot. I nearly put uh, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle as well. I hear um, that's good. I've never seen that movie. It, You know what? It is. It is okay. a good film. All right. Uh, with, and, and it has, you know, this wonderful meta-commentary, the idea that uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle exists like in cartoons but mm-hmm. they can't enter the real world because they're trapped by red tape mm-hmm. like literal red tape adorable uh and uh, an executive played by janine garofalo says oh this is great i want to make a uh, rocky and bullwinkle movie and she reaches into a tv and pulls out the villains yeah because they're attached to the project and that's the world. cute and then uh, an fbi agent played by piper barabo pulls a big lever and like sucks rocky and bullwinkle into the real world all of that's fun and and it's, oh, and it's all the stupid puns you'd expect. People, from Rocky people said and that movie sucked when it came out. I don't it's, trust anybody it's anymore. So delightful. I, I need to watch it. Yeah. Um, all right. So real, uh, real, real fast. A couple more things. Uh, uh, let's see here. Yada 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 yada. Uh, Transform. The only Transformers movie that makes my list is Bumblebee. Bumblebee is one of the ones I haven't seen. Bumblebee is actually really, really fun. It's kind of an 80s movie about a kid who befriends a magical so-and-so, but it's a good version of that. And it's anchored by Haley Steinfeld, so you know it's good. Uh, so kudos mm-hmm. to that. And Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight made my runners up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that is it. That is the Iron List uh, for this well, for last month, actually. Again, sorry about that. Yeah. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna get back on the trolley. And if you're a member of our Patreon at any tier. Uh, you can vote for the next episode 
of the Iron List. And your options, which will be available around the time this episode goes live, so head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Your options are as follows. The best cult movies. These are movies that have a cult. Not about cults. Not about cults. We could have done that, but no. These movies that are cult films, and we think they are the greatest cult films of all time. Uh, are The best murder mystery movies. These are movies in which the whole plot revolves around a murder mystery of some kind, and there's a lot of wiggle room in what that means, but boom, murder mysteries. The best video game movies. Now, this could be based on a video game or it could be about video games. Mm. little leeway there, depending on how we want to handle that. And the best zombie movies ever made. We might have to call a limit on how many Romero movies we're allowed to use. <laughs> but we'll talk about that when the time comes. Well, you know what? It, it's our list. It's so our list. Can, you can make that decision if yourself. You want, to, if you want to make five of them Romero movies. That's a, that's your prerogative. Five, but maybe. Okay, anyway. And then lastly, because we're doing this as part of a series, and every time you vote for it, we will do it. Uh, the best movies that start with the letter E. Hooray! We've done A through D so far. Might as well do E next whenever you feel like voting for it. Anyway, those are all the options available at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, if there's a movie that you love that we didn't even mention uh, that you feel like deserves a mention here, feel free to let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at critically acclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of our show, We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, send us a physical letter, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And, uh, of course, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We love you all. Thank you for your patience. Stay safe. Stay sane. Do whatever you need that makes you happy, as long as it's cool, because you want to be cool, don't you? Anyway, I'm just rambling right now. That's the list. Okay.